Welcome back to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. John's not just here fighting off a little bit of a sore throat, so if I'm a little raspy, that's why. But I uh, have a great show for you today. Uh, we're going to start things off with Rob Williams. I'm uh, happy to uh, meet Rob and have him on Word Balloon. Uh, really blown away by the start of Martian Manhunter. I loved uh, the eight-page preview and issue one, and I think it's uh, one of the more interesting books that are uh, coming out from D.C. right now along with some friends that you've already heard and more that you'll be hearing uh, as the summer progresses. But uh, great to talk to Rob about uh, not only that, but his Royals series that he had from Vertigo. And uh, also uh, talking a bit about 2000 AD, uh, his work over there on Judge Dredd, and uh, just his thoughts on the company in general. And also uh, really fun work uh, on Doctor Who uh, as he writes the Matt Smith Doctor. I, I designate a number... But I, seriously, ever since the War Doctor and that 50th anniversary, I'm completely confused. You know, I, I, I just don't know. Are we on 13? Are we on 12? I, I don't know. And uh, until I find out, uh, you know, I'll just refer to them all by their actor names. But it's a really fun uh, series and uh, very delightful. And uh, happy to talk to Rob and also get some thoughts on some of the characters he's working on as well. Uh, then we're going to talk to Chris Ryle. Uh, from IDW, the editor-in-chief and uh, also often writer, including a new series, sci-fi action, uh, in the Space Knight kind of uh, realm as far as its inspiration. It's called Onyx, and it starts on Wednesday. So it was a great opportunity to talk to Chris, uh, get his thoughts. He's celebrating 11 years as uh, uh, being a part of IDW, and uh, also started off at moviepoopshoot.com back in the day, back in the uh, earlier days of uh, comic book blogs. So, uh, interesting conversation. I hope you'll enjoy both of those today on Word Balloon, brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners. Thank you very much for your support, League. Uh, you're helping me out as I head to San Diego and uh, get things going at Comic-Con. Uh, we'll be bringing you some programming from the con, uh, some panels and uh, interviews, and uh, all uh, part of the uh, appreciation from the League of Word Balloon listeners. So, thank you for your support. In uh, some cases, they've already heard uh, some of the interviews that you're going to be hearing today. I mean, I've been trying to do that, and that's one of the uh, benefits for being an official part of the League of Word Balloon listeners. Um, if you want to help support the uh, show, you can do that by sponsoring uh, me at uh, Patreon. If you go to uh, my site, uh, there's a tab right there that explains. It has the link to the Patreon website. Come to wordballoon.com, watch the videos, and uh, thank you for helping me out. Word Balloon is also brought to you by InStock Trades at InStockTrades.com. Excellent deals are happening at InStock Trades. Frank Barberi and Chris Moneyham, Five Ghosts. Man, I love this book. I'm such a fan of it. And uh, the Deluxe Hardcover Edition Volume 1 is available now, and it's a great way to start. It's the first 12 issues. Uh, you can save 42%. It's just $20.29. You can also get from Marvel... Uh, a fun epic collection of Ant-Man and Giant-Man stories at 42% off, just $20.29. Scott Snyder's first volume of Witches. Uh, we talked about that series with Scott. Uh, great book. It's just $9.99. Summertime fun with Archie. Campfire Stories is 50% uh, off, just $5.49. And a whole lot more. Check out all the great deals at InStockTrades.com. All right, let's uh, pick up our conversation with Rob Williams. This was a real pleasure and uh, fun to talk to him. And he's got great ideas for John Jones, the great Martian Manhunter. An interesting spin on the character. I really urge you to read that eight-page pre preview and issue one. This uh, episode was recorded before 
uh, the first issue came out. It just came out last week. And uh, But I do suggest you check it out. Really interesting stuff. And uh, lots more from Rob Williams as we talk now on Word Balloon. Rob Williams, welcome to Word Balloon. It's a, it's a pleasure to talk to you, and uh, thank you for joining me today. Hey, well, thanks for having me, man. I'm, I'm uh, pleased to talk to you as well. You know, and uh, you reached out last year when you were doing uh, the Royals, and I do want to talk about that. But I must tell you that your current plans for the Martian Manhunter, based on the preview that we've seen, just blew me away. And uh, I'm very excited about this book. So uh, congratulations on the direction that you're choosing. Oh, thanks. I mean, it's, it's kind of, you know, it comes up in about where we now, about three days away from, from the launch day. So it'll be interesting to see how, it, how, how people react to it. I mean, he's, John's a, John Johns is a character I've always had a soft spot for. Um, and then you try and kind of come up with something you know some kind of approach is sort of a little bit different and a little bit sort of yourself and also something that hopefully will get will get people excited so um we had a really good reaction we did a we did a free eight page preview story as, as all the new dc launch books did um mm-hmm. and, and this that seemed to go down pretty well and um so you know fingers crossed people like what we're doing because it's in one sense it's it's the john johns you recognize and in another sense it's it's doing a little bit something a little bit different with the mythology, but it but it's it's a lot of fun and yeah, I'm I'm really enjoying it. But it fits, and I mean that's the I mean I appreciate a radical change from you know what's come before with certain characters, yeah. and certainly characters that were created in the Silver Age and Golden Age, of course. But you know they were more ciphers that really uh, you go back to those old house was it House of Mystery? Yeah. Yeah, the the House of Mystery, or even the the detective backups that John Jones had, and you know, I mean, honestly, it could as easily have been a Hawkman story, or an Adam Strange story, or even a Green Arrow story. Yeah, as you know, as and in fact, Green Arrow and uh, Martian Manhunter were uh, you know the occasional crossovers and stuff. But but that's the thing, and um, you go ahead and describe. I mean, I, you know, I mean, like I said, the eight page preview's been out there. So, but if people haven't seen it and stuff, you've got a human that, that comes with a very specific point of view on the way that John Jones has uh, conducted himself since coming to Earth. Yeah, I mean, I was, it's, it's trying to kind of get your head around this guy. When you when you get given a job like this, you kind of look into the character and you try and get your head around what's interesting about him and, and, and some kind of angle that you can, some kind of hook that you can run with. And, and for John, it's kind of like he's he's this enormously powerful figure. I mean, he's just like he's. If you look at the Justice League, he's probably the heavy hitter out of all of them. Sure, maybe maybe, maybe him and Superman would, would be an issue. But then I take John because of the whole thing with like the telepathy and and the shape shifting and. So if he's so powerful and, and, and he can look like anything he wants to look, and you kind of think, well, why does he look sort of like this kind of green, kind of strange, slightly off figure who looks human but kind of isn't? And, and it's, it's, almost like, it's almost like a bad job. Do you know what I mean? Like, like, <laughs> it's, he, you know, the guy could look like, he could look like Brad Pitt if he wanted to. Um, and he chooses to look the way he does. I mean, you start to think, well, why, why is that? And then you kind of think, well... Is it, you know, one way of looking at it would be maybe he's he wants to stay true to his Martian heritage, but he doesn't look like that as a that's not that's his right. that's not his true form. So then you kind of go, I think maybe whether or not this is a conscious thing for him or, or it's on a subliminal level, he I think he wants to kind of he wants us to keep clear. He wants to be that loner that that is inherent in 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 the character, the loneliness, the the outsider, the kind of the, the pathos. 
And I, I think he wants us to, to... He looks like a, almost like a bad excuse for a superhero. And I think it's because he wants us not to be scared of him. Because the, the fact of the matter is, if you saw what he really is and what he was really capable of, you would be scared of him. And I think there's, there's a sense of, like, with John, is, like, don't get too close. Because um, the, the actual reality of, of, of his capabilities uh, is, is pretty terrifying. Um, so then you, when, when you go into that, you, you start looking at that and you kind of think, well, he's here and he's, he's, he's on Earth and he's the last Martian. But then, but what, you know, what if he's not? And, and I mean, I know that in, in the past, you know, Grant Morrison uh, with his Justice League run did a, did a thing with the, with the Martians coming back and John wasn't the only, uh, the only Martian. But then once you get into that, that line of thinking as well, I mean, you start playing with the mythology and you think, well... Maybe the things he's been telling us all these years about his history uh, isn't the whole truth. And maybe he is the last of his kind. That was true. But what he's never really told us is exactly what the last of his kind is. Um, so these are all questions we're going to tease out and we're going to answer eventually. And, it's, and this is what I mean. It's about staying true to what makes the character a great character and what makes people love him. But also trying to come up with something... That, a little bit contemporary and 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 and, um, and different, and and uh, uh, trying to put a tiny bit of a new spin on it, and and tr- and basically trying to, I, w- I wanted to get across more than anything just the threat of this guy, sort of just like he's not a, he's not a joke, he's he's to be taken very very seriously, and um, and there's a lot of you know great drama that you can pull out of that. Absolutely, and I think um, unintentionally a lot of the big events have made John more, they, they've really either spoken to his own vulnerabilities. Uh, the, the whole thing of, uh, was it, and I, and I, it was, if, uh, it was final crisis, mm. you know, and, 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 you know, having his lame, uh, one of his lame fifties villains come back and, you know, burn him alive in front of all the other villains and stuff like that. And to show how weak he could be. Mm. Um, and I, and I thought that was interesting, but by the same token, it really minimized, what the Martian Manhunter represents. And I like your level of paranoia yeah. that comes through on one of the characters that's really, you know, examining John and saying in the same way that they're trying to do in these Superman Batman trailers, which I think is legitimate. Yeah. And it's something that Jeff Johns did as well as he's an alien. Yeah. How do we, you know, how do we know we're not being put on? And you're saying too, to not only make it uh, him more comfortable to us, but to the point too of, you know, yeah, that it's, uh, it's it's what an alien would think a human would want. Sure, and and there's also and I, that's cool. There, that's there's it. like the, the um, there's a character in, in the eight page preview who will, who will be coming back called Helen Demos. She's a NASA scientist, mm-hmm. and she she actually says, look, he's he's uh, with with his um, telepathy as well. Um, what if you know what we think of him is not is what he's wanted us to think all this. Yes. How do you know when you when you're dealing with a, a telepath of that level and Suddenly, that kind of puts a huge w- area of whoa. You know, I mean, yeah. when you have to question every, every, uh, every thought and every decision you've made about this character along the way, if you've known him, well, was that my thoughts or was that his thoughts? Uh, was that what he wanted us to think? And and, and so all these things come into it. And, and the, the whole thing with paranoia is part of it. I mean, one of the themes is, as you'll see, is you know just how news media sort of you know 
gets us all fearful, you know, just like so much, <laughs> so much of every, you know, every newspaper and every TV show, you, you, every TV news you put on, it wants you to be afraid of one thing or another. And, and um, this is something that's going to play into it again. And, and the whole idea of an outsider amongst us, um, a shapeshifter amongst us, you know, the, the, and, uh, but, but very much, I think what the, are you going to see without giving too much away, what the Martians want us to do is, is that they want us to do it. They, it's not an overt invasion in, in the traditional sense. It's just kind of nudging humanity mm-hmm. to kind of towards our, 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 our worst instincts, really, which is something that you'll turn on the news and you'll see every day. And there's, there's a, one of the key lines, again, in the series is when you turn on the news in the night and you see all these things around the world that you can't believe human beings could ever do, and you think, well, well, what if human beings didn't do that? What if, what if something else did it and, and just wants us to be fearful? Um, uh, so all these things come into it. And it, there's certain sort of, I guess, one of the easy comparisons is like this Homeland. There's elements of Homeland in it, the TV show. Uh, sure. But, um, but a lot more as well. And, and again, as you'll see is when the book comes out on Wednesday, there's, there's, uh, there's different approaches in within one book there's one storyline is very much sort of more you know noirish and kind of like and then there's elements of horror even like john carpenter's the thing is in there um because again they're shapeshifters <laughs> sure <laughs> like, sure and fire they don't like fire again that's john carpenter's the thing and um and then you, right. you've also got a, a character in it a brand new character who's very much like a studio ghibli kind of film like very much like a miyazaki type of character um so, um, yeah, it's just trying to have fun with it and trying to throw different ideas at it and, and, and hopefully not give... Uh, one thing I do hope is, like, when people have, have expectations when they read number one up this week, uh, it's, gonna, it's not going to be the book they think it is going in, I think. Interesting. Well, I, I do look forward to reading the rest. And uh, is there room for John Jones's uh, human detective secret identity in the book, or is it... Primarily the alien. Uh, you'll see that. You'll, you'll, there's, there's, I, I, don't, I can't give too much away with that. But there's, um, again, there's, it's, I'm trying to stay true to that, the kind of history of the character, but also trying to put a new spin on it. So I, sure. I'm afraid I can't. I, I don't want to give too much away there. Okay. No, and that's fine. And the only reason why I ask is literally yesterday I was talking to Mark Miller about this. Mm. And, and just the bigger question of where secret identities are in the depiction of today's superheroes, mm. because it almost seems like, and, and I'm painting with a broad stroke, uh, certainly the current status quo, even in the new DC, uh, that we know that, you know, certainly Superman's identity is exposed on Marvel's side, Iron Man and Captain America, very public with who they are. Um, and talking to Mark, obviously the whole idea of civil war came up sure. and the big, the big reveal that Spider-Man unmasks during civil war in the comics the unlikelihood that that will be part of the movies, but kind of speaks to almost this idea of, well, you know, do is it that the publishers think that the readers just want to read about the heroes? Is having a dual identity old hat? I mean, these are just questions that I'm asking. I th- and and I, and yeah, you know. So please, yeah. No, I, th- I mean, I think sort of, you know, you can see sort of, you can see why they would do it with something with something like what they've done recently with Clark Kent and and, and, and Superman, because I mean, it's always been a little intrinsically charming. 
you know, certainly, but but a little silly, but he could just put the glasses on and, and no, sure. no one would see it. But that's also part of the charm of the character and why we love that, you know. And, and Absolutely. Well, and part of the metaphor. I mean, yeah. you know, it, it, you know, God quietly, I think, really showed it in All-Star Superman where the physicality of being Clark Kent versus the physicality of being Superman, that it does go beyond the glasses. But no, please. No, continue. no, sure. And, and, and Christopher Reeve did that brilliantly with, with, with like, yes. kind of hunching his shoulders and the, the, an entirely different kind of, as you say, physicality when he played that character. I think for, for John Johns, it's, it's an entirely different thing because there's not that cutesy, oh, no one can find out who, right. who I am to protect my loved ones or whatever, like the old, the old, the old standards. It's, it's entirely more... For him, I think it's it's he wants to know what it's like to be a human being, and 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 that makes perfect sense for the character. He's here, and I think he's, as you'll see, it's kind of like it. it he is trying to reach for something, some kind of ownership and understanding and empathy and all these things. Um, and also, there can be that could be a sinister thing as well. You know, if you it, the guy you've got to know the last couple of years, you know, it turns out he's a Martian. Uh, right, who may might have um, certain sort of uh, untoward sort of um, uh, reasons for 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 being here and be and, and pretending to be this person. So, um, uh, but then I, that's not entirely the case with John. You know, one, one thing again okay. is like there's going to be a lot of gray area with this. Interesting. Well, no, I I think that's good, and I hope uh, again without you giving anything away that really his motivations are explored. And that it isn't just, well, deep down, we know, you know, it's, of course he's a hero. Of course he, you know, because yeah. I understand it's got to be the lead. I appreciate the complexity that I think current writers in whether, whether it's comics, film, television, whatever, that they do take it a step further. And, you know, a guy like Dexter can have a show on Showtime and he's the hero. Yeah. And, and, and be, you know, as bad as he could be. And it's something, and I'm, I'm going to throw another guy at you because you're writing Doctor Who. Which Doctor are you currently doing? Uh, the 11th Doctor, the, the Matt Smith uh, incarnation. Okay. Okay. And they even, they've touched upon this, I think, in the series, in the Tenet years and in the Smith years. And you saw it, I think, in the in the 50th anniversary crossover. I talked to Paul Cornell about this. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I was thinking about uh, the the episode of the, during the Tenet years where uh, he kind of punishes yeah, yeah. family and he puts the little girl in the mirror and what he does to the rest of the family. And because ultimately the doctor, as much as we want him to be our big brother or whatever, he is still an alien. He's coming from a different point of view. And you could really go dark with that. And certainly he scares yeah. the, the bad the bad people that he faces with that possibility. Yeah, and I, but, I, I but, think it's always there with the doctor. I mean, there's all at least yes. in one episode... And, and I think it's true with our with our comic as well because I'm co-writing the eleventh with Al Ewing, who's doing a lot of Marvel work now. Um, mm -hmm. And um, you know, there's like one angry god moment in just about every issue, and that's great to play with because he's so he can be really cutesy and he can be very uh, he's the trickster. He's got, you know he's got a great line with patter and jokes and everything. But, sure. But every now and again, there's just a flash of you know you don't know who you're messing with here. <laughs> <laughs> and and that is really interesting to play with, and and the darkness is. I mean, there's been episodes, and there's like the Dream King in in um, uh, not the Dream King. He was, I think, he was called the Dream Lord. Sorry, uh, in yeah, Toby, uh, Toby, Toby, um, Hus. Oh man, is it Hus? He he played Capote. Yeah, he, of course, no, he's, he's, he's a fantastic he's, actor. Is it is it Gollum? Isn't he also Gollum? Yeah, uh, no, he's not Gollum. He's uh, oh. uh, the, the, you're right. It's Toby. 
and the name's escaping me, but he's terrific. Really. All right, I'll, I'll, I'll look it up while we're um, talking, but I, but he, I, I thought it was Toby Huss. But go on. No, but it's not. Oh, oh no, no. Toby, Toby Huss is King of the Hill. He's an animated actor. Yeah. I'll find it. Yeah. But he's, <laughs> a, I mean, but he's like, you know, in that, that that's, an, that's an aspect of a doctor's personality, and he's very, very dark. And, and, and also there's... Um, uh, there's a legend of uh, it has appeared in the Doctor's past and a couple of times of the, the Valyard, which is one, one yes, one incarnation of a Doctor who um, uh, who, who is evil. Um, Absolutely. And of course, the War Doctor, the War Doctor, the John Hurt incarnation, you know, went to the bad side and did a lot of bad things in the name of good, but still did a, did a lot of bad things. So, but it, you, you kind of play with it, but you can't. I think what's interesting when you do this, it does intrinsically make the character more interesting. But at the end of the day, the reason people love these books and love John Johns and why they love the, doc- the Doctor is is they are heroes. You know, that is at the absolute heart of it. You know, of their, their journey along the way, if you can make it interesting and layered and textured and all these things. But at the end of the day, you can't ever forget that, that they're, they're the, you know, they're taking down the bad guys, uh, ultimately. And, and but, you know, you... But, that that's something you've always got to cling on to. I think otherwise you get lost. Tell me about your uh, story with Al. What uh, what are you putting uh, Matt Smith through? Right oh now? no, well we've um, <laughs> uh, we've done a, we've sort of um, structured uh, Doctor Who like like seasons. And for the first season, Al and I basically acted like little mini showrunners on it. Um, so what we did is we um, we sat down together and we worked out uh, the the overall A plot for the for the season. Um, and then we split the season in half, and a couple of books we co-wrote together, which was kind of an interesting experience. And then some Al's written, some I've written. Uh, but the overall major plot—it's—it's—it's it's, it's a two-two-handed ha- thing. We've kind of run it together, um, and it's been great because I've known Al for years through 2080. We both came up through 2080 in the UK, uh, and he's a great guy, you know, and a really, really good writer. Um, so it's kind of nice, and I think that kind of uh, that's an interesting sort of experiment from a writing point of view to actually t- to do it as a as a, as a you know uh, a double act effectively, and um, and we'd even done a couple of interesting little things with it, like with a one-two parter. I, I just dropped off the, the cliffhanger. I just kind of like left this sort of terrible sort of crisis. And then the next issue, Al had to come up with a way to fix it and stuff, you know, but. That's fun. Yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of like quite old fashioned. Yeah, I think they used to do that type of thing a lot more in comics in the past than these days. But but um, we kind of agreed beforehand. That wasn't just like a nasty trick on my part, my behalf. And and Al did it to me and one, one of the other uh, two partners as well. So, but but it's kind of I think when when you know someone well and you trust each other, um, it kind of benefits really because I think we kind of you get a little healthy competition as well. You kind of go, oh, God, what he did in the last issue was really good. So, so then you can feel pushed to actually really drive yourself a bit further as well. That's really neat. So so there are like short uh, either one-issue stories or, or two-part stories basically during your season? Yeah, mainly mainly there's a couple of two-parters. A lot of them are one-parters. But there's this overriding A plot, uh, a plot throughout the entire thing. And um, the, the cool thing about it was in the TV show, um, there was a point where Matt Smith left behind Amy Pond and Rory after they got married. And then the TV show, when, yes. he, when he came back, they said oh, like he was gone for like 200 years. Um, so our stories take place within the, that 200 years. So you you know the Doctor's going to make it out. You know, there's no, there's no drama there. <laughs> but, um, that would be a real turn up for the books if we killed him off. But um, uh, we introduced, we've introduced brand new companions um, 
and the drama comes from building up these brand new characters and you don't know they're going to make it out and and my favorite of the new companions as well is david bowie basically we we kind of um <laughs> the, the whole thing with david bowie's incarnations himself uh through his career and just went oh that, that's perfect for the doctor i mean you kind of go, well how did how did bowie end up being bowie and it turns out in our in our version of it because um he traveled he traveled on the tardis and he traveled with the doctor um <laughs> And the, then the, the great in-joke, but whether anyone else is enjoying this, I don't know, but me and Al have been really enjoying it, uh, and Simon Fraser has been drawing the majority of it, is like every issue, uh, the Bowie character just looks completely different and looks like a, a, one of the versions of Bowie you, you will have seen over the years. <laughs> so he's got the clown outfit out from Scary Monsters. Yeah, he's got it's just he's, uh, every incarnation of Bowie you can think of. is um, That's awesome. And he just turns up. The next, the next issue, he looks completely different from the last issue, and he's... Um, <laughs> And it's just, well, why? And he goes, well, that planet... And it, the explanation is like, well, that planet we went to, that was fantastic. And it gave me a lot of ideas. Um, so, that, so that's been lots of fun. In the last issue that just came out, it, it opened with the Doctor and Bowie um, uh, riding on a motorbike along the Berlin Wall in 1976. And, um, fantastic. Yeah, and that's kind of... Um, yeah, so it's just like, if you... So that's his, Bowie, that's his... You, you may, well, might well hate this series, but if you love David Bowie, then you, yeah, you've been missing out if you haven't been reading. Yeah, I have been. Well, clearly I have been because I'm laughing my ass off. And, I, and yeah, I've been in Berlin, so that's the Heroes period. Sure, so yeah. See, that was, that was, <laughs> it's, uh, it's all the Brian Eno period. And, 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 yeah, you know, yeah. So, I mean, there, there's lots of... And a lot of the, di- the dialogue in it, the character's dialogue, is basically lines from Bowie songs, which no one will have noticed unless you're aficionado. But we've just been crowbarring this stuff in just to amuse ourselves, really. Have you have you heard anything from uh, Bowie's people or anything? No, I don't want to get you guys in trouble, but I hope if anything you'd like it the way Samuel L. liked being Nick Fury. Sure, you 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 would hope so. But also, I mean, I would point out we have changed the character's name and everything because we are aware of image rights. <laughs> and, and even if he looks, it's obviously a reference to Bowie. He looks different. You know what I mean? It's okay. not we haven't. Fully yeah, gone. Yeah, I've, uh, I'm fully gone Ziggy Stardust. You know what I mean? Big, big finish uh, for, the, for the 50th anniversary. Did, did um, fanfare for the Kylan Man. Right. And that was, uh, you know, a Liverpool foursome in 1962 or whatever. And, yeah, it was, like, very obvious of what they were doing. Sure. Uh, and, and if anything, actually, it was an alternate history, and it was the Fifth Doctor, that uh, they're the uh, group that – the Liverpool group that happened to be in Hamburg – that gets picked over the Beatles, and they become the sensation, right. and they become the the movement and everything. And it's it's great. It's really really funny, and it's perfect Doctor Who. So no, that's that's very intriguing, and I'm I'm very excited to, uh, to well, catch well, up on there's, there's a line when they go. I think in issue three of our book, where um, um, the Doctor takes the new companion back to see like this Bowie character's first ever gig. And the doctor says, and this is absolutely, this is what I do with a time machine. What most people would do. He said, the first best use of any time machine is going back to see all those classic gigs that you've only ever read about, basically. And he said that, um, he said, for instance, the, the Beatles first show at the Cavern Club, he said, actually 98% of the audience that night were actually time travelers. <laughs> I mean, I think he says something like, actually Lennon was too, but that's a different story. Um, but yeah, that's what I'd do if I had a time machine. I'd be off to see all these great gigs, and I, you know. But um, anyway, yeah. But no, it's been, it's been a lot of fun, and we've we've all we've really we've really enjoyed it. That's really cool, and you know, I'm I'm glad to hear Simon Fraser is with you too, because uh, Simon's a pal, and uh, yeah, I think uh, really great stuff, and I love Lily McKenzie and and uh, 
the things he's done over the years. So that's that's a good team, man. It's a very formidable well, his, team. His stuff is just like uh, Simon's art has always been like this for 2008 and, and and stuff like Lily McKenzie. But it's just it's really accessible. It's really colorful and open, and the storytelling's great. And it's um is just something about it which just makes it easy to read. Which is which is you know my idea of good comics. You know. Cool. And tell me about working with uh, 2008. What uh, are you doing original stuff? Do you have your own feature there, or are you working on some of the established characters? You've done some dread work. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm doing. I'm doing quite a lot of Judge Dread at the moment. I mean, I've done the last few years more and more of Judge Dread. I mean, I've done loads of stuff at 2008 over the last ten years. Um, currently, actually, there's a uh, one of my and Dom Reedon stories called the uh, take a breath for this it's called the grievous journey of ichabod Azrael and the dead left in his wake because i thought i i just every comic out there is a short and sharp like kick-ass kind of title kick-ass so i thought let's let's go the other way let's let's go the longest title we can do um but that's just been reprint uh, is being reprinted now for the american market and that's uh that's fun as well that's a supernatural western with the, the, the old west's worst killer uh, dies and goes to purgatory, and and then just basically decides to kill his way out of purgatory to get back to to, to um to the living lands, basically. And um, we, we we did some fun things with that. With the 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 afterlife scenes are all in black and white, and the living scenes are all in color. And that was kind of interesting. It's kind of like a Wizard of Oz type of thing, you know, where you had sure you 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 play with the comics format. So that 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 was that was kind of fun. And um, so that's currently out in this in the States through, through rebellion. Um, but at the moment I'm doing judge dread where Henry Flint and I are doing this, um, a really big dread story, um, called judge dread Enceladus, uh, which, uh, probably would take too long to explain, but, um, it's following up basically judge dreads always had, um, a, uh, on Titan on the Saturn moon of Titan has been this prison where all the bent judges get sent. Uh, mm-hmm. and, they we did a, Henry and I did a story last year I think called Titan which was all about a revolt there and all that and and this story now is is the repercussions of that the follow up of that and Henry Flint is just like one of these mad geniuses of uh, of, of comics but I you know it's it's kind of a, a little bit of a crime that not more people in the American market are aware of his work because he's been doing stuff for two thousand three for a long time now and he's just astonishing artist. Um, so um, yeah, it's it, it's one of these things where I just think with the American market, Henry just needs the right book, and he would just be phew, recognized as you know the genius that he is, really. But um, so that's fun. But like I say, two thousand AD has been great the last decade or so, and I've, I've I've done loads of different stories for them. Tell me about the evolution of them as a publisher over the last ten years, because you know um, we we do, even though it's a, a global world now, thanks to the internet. Um, I don't think we uh, com- American comic fans hear as much about how things have changed. Sure. And certainly we've seen gigantic changes in DC and Marvel in the last 10 years or so. So, yeah, tell me about 2000 AD. Well, I mean, I think with the, the, from the, the American market's point of view, there's always been this sense that it's, it's the, this training ground before people go off to, to the States and people like Alan mm-hmm. and Grant Morrison and Garth Ennis well, even going before them, you know, I.e. Pat Nelson uh, and, and uh, Alan Grant, sure. and you know, yeah, I mean, it's just like Poland, obviously, yeah, really, our writers and artists is gone. It's, it's, all, it's always been the case. It's always been like this incredible yeah. hotbed of, of, of talent. Um, 
I think, um, I, I mean, in the last 10 years since I've been working for it, it's been no different. You know, you, you've had people like Simon Spurrier and Al Ewing have, have, have come through. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, just before we all we all started roughly about the same time together. So that's kind of like my kind of era, of it, I suppose. Um, sure. Uh, uh, and then you've had people like Jock and... and uh, Andy Diggle. Uh, Andy yeah. Diggle and Trevor Hairsign and, and all sorts of people. Um, so And, and, and that... Re- that is just a consistent thing that 2080 does. Seems to unearth great talent. I, I, I do think, and I'm, maybe I'm biased. I think there's been just a run of really good quality work the last few years coming coming through the book, um, and, I, and because of digital comics, because of um, the ability to now get 2080 on your iPad the day of release. Um, I think a lot more people in the states have seem to have become aware of it. I mean, I still think there's a way to go, but I, but I know for a fact that, that the iPad was like a game changer for two. Oh yeah. Because it was, I would talk to, uh, I'd go to like American conventions or whatever. And I I'd talk to people in the States and go, oh, it's just a nightmare to get hold of. You know, it was like, it would come in in packs to comic shops, but you know, just sp- sporadically. Um, and it was just, you know, you can't get – I think so much of comics reading is momentum. You enjoy a story and you want to read the next one. If the next one doesn't turn up for a couple of months, then you, you lose your way. Um, so so things are changing. And, um, I mean, I've worked with a, a few American market artists and, and, and sort of brought them in to do one-off dread stories, people like Guy Davis and – um, uh, James Harron and uh, and people like that, and um, cool. you can just see the kind of I, I think the kind of the the barriers melting between it's a British publication and it's it's an American publication, and and certainly you know Rebellion have published a bunch of sort of uh, American format miniseries is now mm-hmm. uh, like Ichabod Azrael is the latest one, and before that they've done uh, Dread reprints and stuff. So you can see 2000 e moving more and more into a, in into the American market. Um, and it's like you say, it's just great work, you know, consistently. And the, the way the format doesn't change in as much that there's every issue there's there's a totally disparate spread of like four or five stories, you know? Absolutely. And, yes. and that's great. I mean, that's kind of like, that just gives so much artistic freedom to the, to the creators, you know, there's no sense of, you know, you have to, there's no shared universe apart from the dread world strips. Uh, right. And so you can just go there and you can tell any story you want. And um, and you can push boundaries as well. They're very happy to let you do that. Um, and, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm still very passionate about the comic. I think it's a great comic, and I, I think it's as good now as it's ever been. But, um, but you know, I'm, I'm biased because I guess I've been one of the people, you know, calling it home for the last 10 years. Well, and further uh, that you're, you know, simpatico with, I guess, the way they're, they're currently doing things. It seemed, again, as a reader, that a lot of guys, and probably for better money opportunities as well, that a lot of the names that we've mentioned, once they leave 2000 AD, they don't seem to come back. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and um, I, as you just kind of uh, touched upon when you said that there isn't a shared universe, may, and I was kind of wondering if there was any sort of editorial evolution you can see at dc and marvel and likely because it is a shared universe a very distinct pattern of okay well we're not telling stories quite that way anymore we're going in this direction whether it's the new 52 or even even marvel's splashier just marvel now all new now i mean they're they're meaningless and and really when you get to the heart of it and you look closely in the case of marvel it is just 
you know, a batch of good stories with their established characters. It sounds like because 2000 AD is all these different ideas that are collected in the weekly and, and, you know, that, that it can be very different and therefore there isn't really an editorial, you know, yeah, ideal. I, I see what you say. I mean, I, I don't think, I mean, the editor at 2000 AD is Matt Smith, who I, I think is a really good editor, but I, I think what Matt really does is is come to us and having worked for marvel and having worked for dc i know that mm-hmm. they can be quite editorially driven in, in in some of the the overarching narratives you know yes and I, I i don't think you kind of get that i mean with 2008 you get more they just seem i don't know i can't speak for everyone but they seem very open to if you go to them like for instance simon spurry and al ewing and i did a, a a thing called trifecta a couple of years ago which was quite I think innovative in as much that the, we, we, the dread world is the one shared universe within 2000 AD. There are different stories and different characters that all exist within dread's world. So we came together and said, what if we do these three stories with different characters at the same time in 2000 AD in the anthology format? And they all seem to be, these are separate, entirely separate stories. Um, and then about halfway through all of them, you find out that they're all one story that is all being told from three different viewpoints. Okay. And so we actually had a thing where, like, you know, Dredd kicks open the door in, in his story, and then you turned the page and you went to the next story, which you had no idea up to that point was it was the same story, and you saw, from the other character's point of view, Dredd kick the door open, and then <laughs> they went off on their own way. And that was, like, something where we went to 2000 AD, and 2000 AD would, like, you know, all credit to, to to Matt Smith, the editor, just kind of went, yeah, okay, go for it, and just just let us go. And I, I think um, I think there's a great deal of artistic freedom. This is what I say in 2080, in as much that I think they're they're very open to creators' ideas more so than coming to you as a creator and saying this is what this is what our new launch is going to be, and this is what we want to do, and you know, can you fit into this? You know, sure, uh, certainly. So I think it's just a, a kind of a, a different mindset. I mean, I'm not saying one's better than the other, but no, uh, and there's definitely elements to for, for freedom within both both ways of doing it. But um, I mean, I, I just think it's a two thousand. These seems like a, I mean, the limitations are like you get five or six page stories every every week. You know. You, 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 that that's a very tight form of storytelling. You, you've only got enough time to do the setup, obstacles, cliffhanger, and then get out. You know what I mean? Sure. Um, but then I think it was like John Wagner said years ago that there's like writing in those in in that way sort of um, uh, reveals the men from the boys. You know what I mean? It's just kind of like I do. You have to really strip the fat off, um, which I think it it might be a cliche, but I do think is what benefits. The the British uh, and Irish writers who have, have worked for 2000 AD who then go to the American format and get 20 pages or 22 pages a month and it's just like oh I've got all this room to play with um, <laughs> and, and and maybe that's that's helped them along the way I don't know I can't help but think it does because I've had this conversation with a lot of creators both British and American uh, talking about that very thing of can you write a six page or eight page story and really make it work. And it seemed like the Silver Age guys, and maybe because of caption boxes and things like that, mm. were able were able to do it in a way that I thought the modern American guys couldn't. Meanwhile, all you Brits, because of those limitations, are forced to work that way. Mm. And Rogue, Rogue Trooper was always one of my favorite 
uh, British features. Yeah. And, you know, and, and there's a great example of usually six or eight page stories and got it done. Beautiful art. You know, you're right there. All those future shocks and everything, yeah. the really good future shocks. I mean, that's that's a really good skill. And I, and I think you're right. I think I think it only makes you a better writer having that kind of limited space. But also, I mean, it's a good tra- I think it's a good training Yes, but then I can see why. After a while, people get you look at the complexity of of what's capable with more pages. I mean, what I mean, I don't think it's just the money. I think sometimes people just want more more space to to to, sure. to do to do their thing. And and um, uh, but 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 I do think. I mean, you know, it's a it's a it's a it's a given. I think that like there's there's more money in the, in the, there's riches in the American market. Not for everyone, but there. Are, I mean. But, but uh, you know, uh, you can see why certain people have got, gone off. But then I think people do like to come back and would love to come back. I mean, I've had sort of people tell me, uh, I wouldn't name any names, who, 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 who uh, you know, do very well in the American market. And, oh, I'd love to come back and work for 2018. <laughs> that's great. But um, Well, that's – But there are – I mean, I guess there is – if you're a top – if you're one of the top players in the American market, then I'm sure, yeah, you're, you're, it's tough to turn the cash down. We're seeing uh, the big uh, image explosion, and it's happening on on, on both sides of the continent. Sure. But are there examples of creator owned that are inspired? Are you seeing that in in your group of friends? Yeah, where people want to do stuff, but but not go the image route. I I, I mean, are there other image like opportunities? Uh, you know, overseas that we don't know about. I mean, image, image, obviously, you know, luckily has kind of reached this point now where they are number, if you know, number three, and even in, depending on certain stores. I know this in Chicago. Uh, a good friend of mine. Uh, it's it's Marvel, then it's Image. Yeah, DC is number three, which is interesting. But yeah, you know, I mean, so is it is it happening? Do you think as rapidly over there as as it is over here in terms of the creator-owned opportunities in general yeah i mean uh, you know titan uh publishing in the well there's two there's, i think there's two ways uh you can do it in the uk really i mean but but again i would i the internet age there's no reason if you're in the uk you can't just be going to the states you know and, and there's sure people we know i mean you know kieran gillen and, and jamie McKelvey, i think were like the um the the main example of like the traditional way was if you were a Brit, you went into 2008 and then or you did a certain amount of years of 2008 and then you went to the Americans. Well, Jamie, yes. Jamie and Kieran did phonogram through image. Absolutely. And I, yep. I don't think I've ever worked for 2008 and just bypassed it. And more people can do that. You know, I mean, Eric Stevenson comes over to the, to a couple of British cons a year, I think. And, and there's a lot of British creators who, you know, want to go there and want to go to Image. Um, uh, 2000 AD do in the Judge Dread magazine do a create your own slot, and they've done um, uh, they've done books like Snapshot, which was Andy Diggle and Jock. Yes, um, they did. I read that. Uh, Number Cruncher, uh, which was Cy Spurrier and, and PJ Holden, and okay. and myself and Disraeli did a create your own book initially through there. Uh, or, is that was that class class one? Uh, ordinary, we did last last year. Oh, excuse me. And then. Okay. Um, uh, and then we, after that, sort of released Ordinary for the American Market through uh, Titan Comics, which is still, um, uh, which which is still out there. And I would very much encourage people to buy. <laughs> um, but it's because um, I, I, I genuinely think it might might be my best work, to be honest. With you. But um, well, no, and shame on me, man, because now that I think of it, when you told me about the Royals, you did mention Ordinary yeah, yeah. as well. I mean, it's just a bit. It, so. it, it, this is, I think, this is the thing with Creator Own now is kind of like image is such a, as you said, such a big deal, but. That that's where people go for create run, but there's all these other people are 
doing create your own books through other areas as well. But image is really the, um, is, is the main show. And, um, but, uh, that's not to say that like, I know Titan have done a big, big, uh, run of, uh, create your own books in this country than through the American market. Um, uh, I, I, and yeah, I mean, I think everyone I know in comics, regardless of with, whether they're American or British, wants to do more creator-owned work, and everyone's trying to work out the finances of how they can do it. I mean, tell me about. Well, no, please go on, and then I'll ask you about ordinary. So no, because it's just. I mean, the bottom line is, you know, we all want to do creator. We've all got stories we want to tell, and we'd all like to own them. But it's um, and and it's it's more just kind of like I think writers can can find a way to work it um uh, and art artists sure uh, find it difficult to, without a page rate i mean if you can get an that's great but then we're getting into the business side of things but i don't i don't i don't i've never met one person who doesn't want to do great work <laughs> yeah just but uh, but i was wondering and uh, uh, asking about ordinary now too uh yeah just in terms of the response image has kind of proven itself to be just a good kind of clearinghouse and shorthand for people to okay, well, if it's coming out from Image, yeah, yeah. you know they're they're willing to check it out, and there's a bunch of good creator-owned ideas coming from there. Um, tell me, well, tell me about Ordinary, because yeah, I want to be, let's have people give a chance to check out your creator. Well, stuff. I mean, Ordinary's a story, but I thought it was a really nice hook. Is basically uh, there is a plague, uh, which is like a Walking Dead type of deal, but every single human being on the planet gets a superpower, apart from one guy. And this guy is a plumber in Queens who was divorced. <laughs> and he was one of the most ordinary people on the planet before this plague hits. And then for some reason, he is the only person who doesn't get this. And he is, uh, a, like I say, he's, he drinks too much and smokes too much. And, and his marriage broke down. And he, when the world goes to hell, when, when, the, when the plague comes on, it's not a utopia. It's just people... People are genuinely kind of shitty to each other. Sure. And if you give, <laughs> and if you give them superpowers, then they're going to be shittier to each other. And Absolutely. suddenly the, the slightest <laughs> argument that in the street turns into a war zone. And amidst this kind of background, um, our main character, Michael, um, uh, uh, realizes that his, he can't get through to his ex-wife. And he realizes his son is in school in Manhattan. And he's got to try and make it to the school across this incredible landscape where every single person is freaking out. And the, the other cool thing is, I mean, this, I did this with Disraeli, who's like one of, one of my favorite collaborators. And again, he's just, a, I think a genius of an artist. Um, and we just, every individual who gets superpowers, there's no capes in this. There's no superheroes in this. Every power had to say something about the kind of the subconscious of the individual, you know? So everyone's got really freaky powers in this. Um, and there's all kinds of great visuals in it. Like, uh, you get like one of the New York Yankees turns into a giant and knocks the top off the Empire State Building with a baseball bat while jet fighters are shooting at him. Um, and it's just, there's all this kinds of stuff, stuff going on. And, and, and against this world, you, you kind of, this guy, this one guy has to find something extraordinary within himself. And, and that's the kind of, at, at its heart, it's a story about, someone coming to terms with being a father and, and, uh, and also coming to terms with being willing to find something good in himself, you know? Um, but also he becomes the, um, as it turns out, you know, like any, any, any plague, uh, the cure can only come from if you find someone who's uh, immune to it. So he suddenly goes from being the most 
uh, ordinary person in the world to, to, in his own way, be in the most extraordinary. Um, and it's funny and sad and uh, looks amazing. And genuinely, I'm really, really proud of the book. That's cool. No, that sounds really interesting. Very, very cool. And that's from Titan? Yeah, you can get it in the States in, in Titan. It's, it's available in graphic novel form now, and it's on Comixology and things like that as well. Excellent. Very cool. And uh, and is did the Royals wrap up, or are you are you still doing them? Yeah, right? no, we did. I mean, that was like that was structured to be a six-issue series. One okay. it's like set in World War II, and what we wanted to do, it seemed like a good sort of way to, to, to structure that book, was every issue was one year in World War II. Oh, okay. Um, so you had a jump ahead of about a year every time. And, and we went through, issue one was the Battle of Britain. Uh, issue two was Pearl Harbor. Issue three was um, Midway. Um, issue four was Stalingrad. Issue five was D-Day. And then issue six was the fall of Berlin. Um, and we kind of followed these story, these characters through an alternate history of World War Two, And the whole idea there was that um, the only people in, in the world who have superpowers are royalty. And uh, the, the higher the ro- you are in, in, in a royal family, uh, the purer your bloodline is, the, um, the more powerful you are. Um, and I'm a big sort of, I'm a big World War II buff, and I read lots of books on, on, the, on the era. So it was just fun for me to kind of throw as, as much of this stuff on the page as I could really. And, um, and again, Simon Colby, the artist on that just did a beautiful job. We, we kind of agreed going in, that it was just like everything had to be referenced. You know, it couldn't just be, you know, if you see a ship or a plane or a uniform in it, it had to be, look like a real thing, which is great cool. to agree when you're a drunk in a pub with a friend, <laughs> but uh, but like two years in Colby wanted to kill me, I think. And uh, <laughs> he, he, uh, towards the end of the book, he said to me, he goes, I am never doing a reference heavy book ever again. Um, oh, but it looks beautiful. All his hard work is on the page and it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a pretty extraordinary looking book, I think. No, that sounds neat, and I, uh, no, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a 20th century history uh, fan in particular as well, and uh, World War One and World War Two, the complications that yeah, royal bloodlines, you know, when uh, the, especially during World War One, when you know the Kaiser and and the King of England are, are blood relatives yeah, and stuff. Yeah, I'm like, you know, well, and obviously that battle plays. That's that's all part. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm certain it does. I was going to say that only heightens the potential soap opera. When yeah, this is the families warring against each other as much as the country. I also, you, so, I mean, there was also outside of a royalty, there was like things like, you know, you kind of go, well, what happened if what ha- would have happened if the American Navy had, had, had lost at the Battle of Midway? And there's like a school of thought that um, it wouldn't have made that much of a difference to the to the overall outcome of the war because basically Japan just didn't have the resources necessary to 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 carry on building ships and, and planes and boats in the same way that America did, you know, so it just would have, it would have changed the war a bit, but, but not, it wouldn't have sort of meant the absolute end of the war, you know, uh, in, a, okay. in a different direction. So it's, it's kind of fun to kind of extrapolate those kind of ideas through a book as, like that as well, and then put big widescreen superheroes in the middle of it. Well, you know, Chuck Dixon did a Wildstorm book about uh, the Olympi- the Olympia or Olympus project, which essentially was the land invasion of Japan if the bomb didn't work. Right, right. And and my father was in basic training for that mission. Okay. And luckily the bomb worked, so instead he ended up uh, completely on the other side of the world and uh, was part of the occupation troops 
in uh, in Germany right. and in, and in Vienna in particular. Yeah. But I always tell my sister, based on what we know about D-Day, uh, and and you're right in terms of the resources. I'm like, you know, there's like a good chance that we might not have been alive, yeah. and Dad might have died. Go, you know, invading the the beaches of Japan and stuff if they had gone through with it. Yeah. So yeah, no, that's that's very intriguing, and I can I I always do find those kinds of alternate histories very interesting to really look at. Yeah, there was. I mean, and again, the concept was kind of like there was so much we could have done sort of anything in human history beyond that. I mean, I. I, I, I if it, you know, if it got picked up by like in, in the way these things do as as a through DC the, as a TV show or a movie or something, maybe you'll see more of it because I think we we would have liked to have done more because when you talk about just like the core concept of, of royalty through human history, there's there's a there's a big sort of canvas there. Um, but um, yeah, as things stand, you know, we told a nice little story with enclosed in six issues and and. Um, you you get if you pick up a trade paper but you you get the entire thing you see what what happens with these characters very cool man i'm looking at the time i don't want to mess you up if you got to get going no i better run, i better run in about 5 minutes but yeah i mean if, if we sort of tie up but yeah it's um all right we'll, we'll wrap up uh, ask, what, what else should i be talking about no idea you you asked yeah, i was going to say yeah please i want to give you the opportunity to promote um so yeah if you know something comes to mind by the way it was uh, toby jones it was toby jones and I, I really so, love Toby Jones, but yes, it's uh, I should. Yeah, he's that. great. Yeah. <laughs> no worries. No, I, I. Well, you know, um, Class War. I know. Uh, you know, that's been in uh, collected for a couple of years now yeah. and stuff. And this is your first big splash. Uh, you know, uh, and and uh, is that fair to say in terms of like that was kind of like one of the first big projects? That yeah, that was that was kind of the, that was the break. I mean, that was the first comic I ever wrote. I mean, it was. Uh, the first issue of Class War, I I just I had I was a journalist and I had I was always a comic fan and I never had I never had plans to be a comic writer and I just kind of thought yeah you know what I'll just write I'll write a script and I'll see what it turns out like and that was the issue one of Class War that was the, um, so I think I, I I was lucky enough at that time comics were a new publisher in the UK and and they were like willing to read full scripts and I, I gave them this script I and mean, then about three months later they rang up and um uh said they wanted to publish it and they paired me up with uh, trevor hair sign so i got like a fantastic artist as well yeah you did um absolutely. which just absolutely sold the work and um and then, and that that opened just about every other door that I've, that I've ever gone through through comics opened up because of class war you know it was um suddenly 2008 with interested and marvel were interested and um and even even now when i was going in to do this work for dc with martian man and i think sort of it was uh dan didio said to me he goes you know if you if you could do something a bit like class one it's just so it, i think it it's weird that it's like probably over 10 years old now and it's still and it was only six issues but i think it it seemed to make an impression very cool. What kind of journalism did you do? Uh, also, mainly sports journalism, uh, but all sorts. I, I did sub-editing on a lot of different magazines. And in fact, when I started on Classify, I was working for a video production company. So I've kind of, um, I, I've done, yeah, I've done a lot over the years. I did, um, the last few years, it's got less and less just because of the comic stuff. But uh, does, uh, uh, does, the, does the FIFA stuff make you miss sports or anything, the big FIFA scandal that's going no, on? No, I, I mean, yeah, I, I did sort of, the last few years, I did some good, some fun sports stuff for uh, GQ in the UK. And okay. I got um, got to attend the NFL draft. That was fun. I was on about like row four of the NFL draft in um, NFL uh, in, in the Music City. Um, and um, Hilarious. Uh, they sent me down to Jackson, Mississippi for the Saints training camp one year. That was kind of fun. 
to in- <laughs> to interview um, uh, Reggie Bush and uh, so stuff like that was great. And, and uh, don't get me wrong, if there was more jobs like that I would turn up, I would be more than happy. But they they were fairly infrequent anyway. There was a lot of my journalism career was also not as glamorous as that, and sort of sub editing on sort of. Sure, go all sorts of magazines. Sort of, I've, I've done, I've done hair tips. I've written hair tips for magazines. <laughs> uh, I've, I've written, I'm not, I'm not proud of it. I've written horoscopes. I've made them up on the spot. You know, um, hilarious. So that's fantastic. I think, I think well, a lot of people in journalism have done. You know, it's it's rare that you find the pure, you know, the purity of a career. Everyone sort of like done dribs and drabs to sort of get themselves through. Well, certainly, yeah, as a, as a freelance writer, absolutely. Well, and, you know, before we were recording, I was telling you about my sports background. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know about you, but I always say, because it came up actually even in a conversation this week, where people are like, oh, don't, don't you miss day-to-day sports? And I'm like, no, but what I would love to do, if I could keep, uh, if I could choose any sports broadcasting job or uh, in the broadcast world, I would love to do documentaries about sports history. Yeah. Because, because I would love to really get in and really get into the minutiae of, of various moments in sports history where I think there are tons, you know, the stuff that ESPN produces in the 30 for 30 series. Yeah, but I mean, they're, I, they're amazing. I mean, some of those are great. I mean, you know, the Bo, yes. the Bo Jackson one and, and the one of the, sure. um, uh, on the uh, was it the 83 draft? I forget when all the all the quarterbacks were taken with, with Marino and um, yes. uh, Todd Blackledge and all. Yeah, whatever, whatever specific year it was. But yeah, I remember that film. No, the Gretzky film. Really, yeah. honestly, I'd say... Ninety percent of them fascinate me, and there are very few where I'm like, "Yeah, I don't care." I got I saw one just recently about the Soviet, the 1980 yeah. Soviet hockey team yeah. at Lake Placid, and my God, what a great backstory! And you just, you know, again, dumb Americans, we don't know this story, <laughs> and it was, it was, it really was, it was so. I, well, you know, hey man, and and I, 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 I won't generalize your own opinion, but I will out, you know, I mean, God, we are so navel gazing in america and we really do miss a lot of great interesting people and stories around the globe you, we, you say that you know, i mean i think i think everyone does everyone in their country I suppose. You're, you're you're blinkered you you the vast majority of your um of, of, of your attention is on the sport in your country that was what was like a, such a shock for sort of you know with 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 segueing you but i think that was what's sh- such a shock for like the english sort of soccer team for years there was always this assumption that they were the best in the world and then all of a sudden every other team in the world got really technically good um and it, the, that navel gazing i think just occurs naturally i think possibly less so now because we live in the internet age and everything's True. open you know but um but yeah, I mean, uh, the, the ESPN one. There's a great Marcus Dupree one as well. I don't know if you ever saw that. The the the, the, um, the great sort of college running back who blew his knee out and uh, yes, and he now works as a groundsman. I forget where on like a high school team or something. And it's just really yep. um, yeah, that that's just great human stories, you know. Completely agree. Well, and and to bring it back to our our first topic, uh, I do always appreciate the outside view of. Uh, the United States culture, mm. uh, and and I think it's I think it's always fun to see what and then usually predominantly in comics we get the British perspective of of various writers. But I, I've said this before to Mark Miller and James Robinson and uh, Dave Gibbons and and all uh, just in terms of that it is interesting to see what an outsider says and thinks of what we're doing. And I think it brings great perspective on what we're doing, and yeah. it gives you know you, you learn from it. I, I mean, I'm, you t- going back full circle. You look at the history of sort of we're talking about 2000 AD. I mean, every British writer has come through working on Judge Dredd, 
Judge, even though it's a British publication, predominantly written by 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 Brits, um, you know, Judge Dredd is is an American character, and 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 it's all a, a, largely a satire of um, yes. a, 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 of sort of I guess you could say of certain aspects of American culture as well as certain aspects of British culture as well. But another point I would I would make is. I think you do get that. You do get something a little bit outside. But all, again, the vast majority of British creators are major cultural touchstones these days. Are things like HBO shows and AMC shows, and you know, every you know, it's um, we're, we're taking we're, we're far more likely to take in American culture, I think, in, um, uh, rather than be again. It's not like the old days whereby we would just get British shows and we would just get British books and whatever. You know what I mean? Sure. There's, there's a great melting pot now, um, so maybe that'll get diluted more and more as we go on. I don't know. Were you a fan of uh, the TV show Spooks? No, I've never watched it. I've never watched a single okay. episode. Is it good? <laughs> uh, well, I love it, and it's funny because I've heard British people watch it. Go, oh, please, that's just our twenty-four. Yeah, and I'm like, oh, that's interesting. I, I liked them both, and never really felt that way. But further, really jealous, and told this to Mark Miller yesterday that there's the new Spooks movie. Yes, uh, that 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 just came out there, and I'm like, oh god, I'm gonna have to wait till it comes out. Star, starring Jon Snow from uh, from Game of Thrones, I believe. Yes, and and of course, uh, and I forget his name now. Peter, uh, the the lead that was the lead in the series as well, who's uh, who's in the hunt for Red October. Peter Firth, I want to say. Was he the, the film The Hunt for Red October? Oh, uh... he's he's the he's the political uh, officer that Connery kills uh-huh. at the beginning of, of Hunt for Red October. Uh-huh. And and yeah, he's oh he's great. I'm I'm such a fan of that guy. I think he's he's a wonderful actor, and I I love that series. Okay. And and yeah, I, I think it's kind of weird. I mean, myself and the majority of my friends in in the UK, I think we watch predominantly US shows. Maybe you guys are watching our shows. Maybe we maybe we should pay attention to our own shows occasionally. I understand. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Well, we will pay attention this week to uh, the debut of Martian Manhunt. Thanks, man. And, absolutely, man. No uh, continued success. A pleasure meeting you, and um, you know when you got something new, I hope you'll come back and uh, we can talk more. Yeah, definitely. Well, thanks a lot for having me, John, and cheers for chatting. It's been it's been good to chat with you. All right, let's turn our attention to IDW and uh, the diverse works that come out of there, both licensed books, comic book history, uh, covered uh, both as uh, books about comics and reprints as well, uh, artist editions, and uh, great new material, including a new one from Chris Ryle that uh, starts in just a week, Onyx. Uh, it's a pleasure to talk to Chris about that. His 11 years at IDW and a whole lot more right now on Word Balloon. Uh, I pick things up in mid-conversation because uh, Chris was telling me about um, a podcast interview he was going to do for an artist edition, and uh, he was debating about uh, whether uh, he should release it or not uh, as, you know, kind of a, a bonus feature when the actual book comes out. Uh, later in the interview, we're going to give you details of, of the book we're talking about, and uh, but, uh, you know, we'll, we'll pick up mid-conversation there now with Chris Ryle, now on Word Balloon. I haven't talked to Jonah in a while, and I'm not even sure what he still has as far as when he was doing it, you know, like 2004, 2005, right around when I was starting, or maybe right before. Yeah. So, and actually, I was going to ask you a little bit about your movie, uh, Poop Shoot. Days I was going to say, even predating that, it just made me think that, like, when I was, uh, I just got sort of started in all of this writing for Alan David Doan at uh, Comic Book Galaxy. Sure. You know, guys, yes, yes. I, I, it's, I sort of, got into all this and met everybody through Brian Bendis' uh, Jinx World podcast, but 
I, uh, I interviewed Stan Lee and a couple other people for the Comic Book Galaxy back in the day, too. So, yeah, I've been, <laughs> those are around somewhere. That's great, man. I'm, I'm leaving this part in, if that's okay. Oh, yeah, we're, sure. in, we're, we're in full conversation mode. So, Chris Ryle, welcome to Word Balloon, finally. It's a pleasure to talk man, to you. Man, happy to be here, John. Uh, and, uh, well, you see, now he's, now he's getting, all right, now he's got his game face on, so he's like, <laughs> he's, he's not as relaxed as he was two seconds ago. <laughs> I'm, I'm teasing. Um, no, congratulations on uh, 10 plus years at IDW, man. Well, you know what's funny is we're doing this a day after I hit my 11th anniversary, so it's oh, there you go. officially well into the uh, second decade, I guess. Congratulations, very nice. Now, you're the uh, creative off, uh, chief creative officer. Are you also still editor-in-chief? Yeah, I, I basically just sort of add a new chief title every few years, so uh, <laughs> <laughs> I haven't been able to shake the previous one, so I'm holding on to both of them right now. It's like a Cub Scout uh, or Boy Scout uh, shirt. You got, like, tons of badges on you now. Yeah, yeah. Very nice. Excellent, man. Well, that's good. That's kind of in keeping with, uh, with the nerd culture, so that's, that's very nice. And, um, yeah, so you, we were just saying, we were talking about, like, ancient podcasting and stuff and, um, you know, what, uh, like you, you said, Bendis and a few other guys. I was talking to a guy who did uh, audio interviews pre-podcast for Apple in the early 2000s, and he got to interview Douglas Adams, and he said, that's like the nerdiest interview I got to do, and he goes, other, other guys were pretty pretty much techies, and I said, you got to find that Douglas Adams interview, man, and like, get it out there you and put it on. You don't really beat that one, right? Like, that's sort of the king of the mountain right there, I mean, that's 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 as high as Douglas. Yeah, yeah, he's on Mount Rushmore, <laughs> and certainly of, of, like, you know, helping birth this internet age, I think, and internet generation. God, remember, like, and I see, I'm I'm older than you. I remember watching that Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy television show, and you'd see this readout that looks like, you know, I mean, literally, they had a tablet, you know, that's what the guide was, and Arthur's just kind of looking through and getting the information, and it totally looked like a, you know, precursor to an internet readout and stuff, and it was funny to learn that all that animation was literally done handmade, wasn't even like stop motion animation was like a black screen with all the uh, readout and illustrations pre-done and them slowly like uh, unveiling with a black, uh, you know, either piece of paper or whatever they used to slowly drag down and have the like letters appear and the images seemingly download. Yeah. And it's great. Like it's still fun to look at. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And you can kind of tell it's film. Well, and it actually, and, it, it reminds me of, of a period when I could enjoy Douglas Adams before trying to write like him. Cause I'm doing this Dirk Gently comic. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to turn this into a quick plug. No, <laughs> we're going to talk about your books. Absolutely, man. Go but, on. No, just trying to write like Douglas is, it really caused me problems this year just cause it's funny. I remember those books, like the Dirk Gently books, but I didn't remember them being that good as far as novels go. Like they don't, Especially the first one, like, it's not really a great novel, you know, it, the, the character's not even introduced to the first hundred pages and everything, so I started, kind of went into it like, eh, these are sort of lesser Adam's works, it's not that intimidating, and then I read them again, and the way they tie up at the end, and the way every little thing he introduces sort of holds together, and, and not in a contrived kind of way, and it's just like, Jesus Christ, this guy was operating on a level that I will never get to, and then I started having these panic attacks, like, I can't do this. No, I understand. Well, you know, the he had his own language, and it's weird. Now, that makes me kind of want to revisit the books, because as I've read more and more about him and seen the documentaries and stuff, he kind of even admitted the times that, you know, this was not kind of a half-baked idea, I wish I'd spent more time on it, or this was literally a cash grab, and that's why I did it. 
you know, stuff like that, which is kind of interesting. And, you know, was a guy that like would go through periods where, yes, I'm very committed and I really want to work and I'm going to put out a lot of stuff. And then much like all of us would be like, eh, I think I'm going to go uh, spend the summer in Spain. Yeah. And, yeah. Not, and not do anything, you know, and he would just really like and then and find it difficult to get back into the swing of work after promising. Oh, yeah. By the way, that novels do. Yeah, right. <laughs> get back to it. So are you still doing Dirk? Or, uh, I am. I'm, write- on, uh, I'm writing issue four right now of five. And it's by issue four, I finally found this comfort level of, like, I stopped trying so hard to just write just like him and try to make it sort of my version of what I think a Douglas Adams comic would read like, which is kind of the same thing. But by issue four, I've, I've re- sort of released some of the pressure I was feeling and just decided, well, this is what it's going to be. Like, it's never going to be... Doug Adams, it's going to be me doing what I think it should be and hope it reads okay to the fans. But so it's at least less stressed now than it was. But man, those first couple issues were, it hit me in a way that like nothing else I've done has hit me. Who's your artist? I uh, worked with uh, Tony Akins on the first couple issues. Now Ilias uh, Kiriazis has taken over for him. Okay. Love Tony Akins, former Chicago guy. Oh He's yeah, both really expressive, sort of cartoony guys that, that get it perfectly. And then I feel this pressure, like, man, these guys are drawn. So, like, they're making this these scripts that are just really hard to pull out of me into something real. So I gotta, I gotta keep my game up just to make sure I'm delivering to them what they deserve. In the case of Adams, you're right. It is a very specific voice and something that people expect. Um, do you feel how much of the? Because uh, I'm starting to think now of some of the some of the licenses you guys have. And you haven't done any Star Trek stuff yet, have you? I've never done any Star Trek, no. Let me think. So I've done a little tiny bit of Transformers, but we did the uh, the first Star Trek, I'm sorry, Transformers movie prequel comic. It was one of those, I try not to take the license gigs too often because I, I've i always sort of set out not to try to take work away from freelancers. It, you know, if it's something that I create on my own or something like that, I feel okay doing it. But if it's a thing where I'm, taking it and I could potentially hire somebody who, you know, could use the work. I try mm-hmm. not to do that. But like in the case of the first Transformers movie, uh, there was a lot of just secrecy and things to coordinate with the studio that it was just, it was too hard to pass off. So I co-wrote that a bit with Simon Furman, but almost instantly mm-hmm. Simon realized that uh, he was better suited for this than me. So I have a few lines of dialogue in there, but then Simon sort of took over and, and ran with it from there. Okay. And, uh, you know, yeah, there's no real expected voice as far as Transformers goes. Um, you know, Tipton has been doing the Star Trek stuff, right? Tipton's been doing a lot of Star Trek stuff, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I and I got to tell you, man, I love it, and I'm glad that um, you guys have found this uh, working relationship with Star Trek because uh, the crossovers have been a ton of fun. Uh, obviously, the Green Lantern one has been announced recently, uh, but uh, loved the Doctor Who one, loved uh, the... Uh, Next Generation, uh, well, that was, I was going to say, J.K. Woodward's art on the Doctor Who one for that was was pretty spectacular. And then um, also the Planet of the Apes that uh, just happened, that was a lot of fun, too. Yeah, and then back uh, doing getting to do the Legion book with DC was fun, too. Yes, it yes. It didn't seem, seem like anything that they would ever allow us to do. A funny and thing, so a funny quick little aside on the uh, Star Trek Legion book is I've been working with John Byrne for a while at that point, and... I know John's a giant Star Trek fan. He's been proving that, you know, doing Star Trek for years. Great thought, Star oh, Trek. But he also Absolutely. he also knows superheroes. So when we got approval to do this crossover, he was my first phone call. I thought, well, he's the right guy to do this. He knows how to do superheroes. He knows Star Trek. Like, it's perfect. And I was talking to him. He goes, well, you know, 
if you look back at my DC career, like I've never worked on Legion of Superheroes. And you, do you know why that is? I go, no, I have no idea. I just figured chance hadn't come up. He goes, no, I hate the Legion. He's like, they were mean to Superboy. I go, huh? He goes, yeah, in their first appearance, like in Superboy, when they, when they first showed up, they were mean to him. So I, and he's a giant Superboy fan, Superman fan. So, yes, he is. And, like, I, I love hearing that stuff, that he's such a fanboy along with the rest of us that John Byrne would never do the Legion of Superheroes only because, in his mind, they were these bratty kids that were mean to Superboy. So he passed on it for that reason. Oh, dude, I, I kicked myself that uh, we had very briefly talked about him possibly doing Word Balloon. And I'm like, yeah, I'll get to it. And then within a year, he's like, yeah, I'm done with the Internet. Uh, I'm just going to talk through my message board. Screw this. And I'm like, oh, all right. And honestly, he does amazing Star Trek work. He's always been one of my favorite writers and artists. And I do find his very fan-centric opinions on not only, like, the Legion, which doesn't surprise me, but, uh, you know, back in the 70s when the editors would call Batman Bats and, and Superman Soups, and he's like, that, you know, that's uh, that's disrespectful. Well, yeah, and I'm even, like, ah! even to the point of disliking the movie The Incredibles because they make fun of capes. Like, I, I love that sort of thing. <laughs> no, and I get it. That's why he's a, he's a genuine fan. It's It's very, very funny. And again, I love his Star Trek stuff. His God, uh, Leonard McCoy, Frontier Doctor, was excellent, and all the Gary Seven stuff has been a lot of fun. And uh, no, I, I really did. Did he do the Captain Pike series? I'm trying to think. Did he do Pike? No. I love that series too. I'm, you know, that's the thing. Like un, Untapped Trek, it's like God. There's so much to do, and that's why, as much fun as I'm having with the J.J. Abrams movies, the fact that they're not just shitting out Star Trek the way that uh, Disney is doing with Star Wars and even pre-Disney with the Clone Wars and stuff like that. It's like, why are you assholes sitting on this shit and being so precious? I know. Don't you see, like, in five years from now when they're playing catch-up and there's a Spock, you know, solo movie and a new next-gen TV show or something? Like, at some point, they got to realize what they have and and sort of go harder with it. I'm sure that once this current J.J. Abrams deal is over, that's exactly what's going to happen yeah. because it's got to, it has to. I mean, honestly, every like between, between Warner brothers and Disney, it's like, Hey, if you have a franchise, why aren't you just like, you know, to use Paul Jenkins words, flogging that dead horse. Yeah. It's Let's kind of funny. Go. Like transformers has finally now sort of gotten to that point too, with the acknowledgement of, of sort of spinoff movies and forming that new writer brain trust that Kirkman's a part yeah. of. Absolutely. Now, how does that impact uh, what you guys are doing? Really, Other than, great, bring it to us when it's ready. Yeah, I mean, it really doesn't at this point because we, we've sort of just been doing the, the Generation 1 stuff in the comic form. I mean, we've done some of the movie material, but it's never caught on the way that sort of the old school Transformers have. So we just keep doing what we're doing, and if there's movie things to do, you know, it's fun to tie in with those. But a lot of times there's just so many challenges, and you can't show a thing before it shows up in the movie, so you can't really do a lead-in. And then post-movie, sometimes people's appetite for movie universe stuff diminishes a bit. So I think we found this nice balance of just doing all the different kind of things we're doing, you know, even to the point of letting crazy people like Tom Scioli just go crazy and, and do their, you know, whatever they want to do with the stuff. I mean, Hasbro's been great about allowing that, so it's fun to just run with it. That's excellent, and I know the case is uh, true, too, for G.I. Joe. But, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Tom because that's a perfect guy that you want doing. Uh, sci-fi, and I mean his cosmic stuff has been so much fun with uh, with Casey and uh, you know their their Godland book back in the day and stuff, and you know 
Tom's right there with, um, and now I'm blanking. Shame on me. Uh, the guy's doing Silver Surfer right now with Dan Slott. Uh, oh, yeah. The great, yeah, with the great Mike Allred. Shame on me. My God. No, it's exactly. I mean, you want somebody to do aliens and stuff like that. No, Tom Ciolia, that's a good guy to have, uh, you know, play with the Transformers well, as just, well. That's he's, cool. he's a lunatic in every good way. Like, just such <laughs> inventive, out-there ideas, and the, the execution of those ideas is even more bizarre than you expect, and... Like, it's a blast. It's one of those things, too, where I just thought, like, this is a great example of what a licensed comic could be. You know, I, there, there's sometimes when when other publishers get a wild hair and feel like they need to slam licensed comics. I think this is a, that's a great example of what these things can be, where it's not just sort of the, the cash-in or, you know, the way these things are perceived as just a toy tie-in. But this is that is very much a creator vision of what G.I. Joe Me and Transformers can be in a way that nobody ever expected Absolutely, and you guys are building out. Um, I'm, and uh, shame on me, I wasn't prepared to talk this much about Transformers, but uh, the woman that's currently writing uh, yeah, Mary Transformers. Reed. Say it again. Marguerite Scott. Yeah, Marguerite Scott, absolutely. Just heard a great interview with her on uh, one of my buddies' uh, pa- uh, podcasts, the Nerdist uh, Writers Comics panel. And uh, yeah, man, I, no, she's having a blast, and it sounds like... Uh, you know, again, I, I hate to say it, and this this will show that idiot. You don't know anything about the Transformers. I'm not a big. Tra- I you know I was I was trying to get late at this point. <laughs> I, I was, that was my high school years, the Transformers. So I, I you know I'm like I'm, I'm I'm sure if I were ten years younger, I'd be playing with this well, stuff. No, I'm, and I'm, I, I'm, I you know I'm right with you, man. I was uh, I was probably more of a Shogun Warriors, Rom Space Knight guy than I was Transformers. Like Transformers kind of came around a couple years after that, and it uh, it didn't catch me the same way that you know those things catch you when you're ten or. 10 or 12, whatever it is. Sure, absolutely. Well, now we should transition and talk about your your new character that uh, you've created. Um, you know, and, and forgive me, what is her name again? Onyx. Onyx. Very cool. Little little melding of sci-fi and uh, and uh, kind of nice, you know, obviously we, we see where your inspiration may have come <laughs> from. How, I, you know, again, I'm not trying to give you a lawsuit or anything like that, but truly, I mean, you know, we we're, all, we're all fans of Rom. Rom was an amazing comic book that was a cool, a cool toy, and and there's this great mythos, and you know, but just like there could be more than one Knights of the Round Table that have nothing to do with King Arthur and stuff, there, there there's other ways to meld uh, swords and armor with with sci-fi. It's funny. It was there's probably a betting pool on how long it was going to take me to bring up Rom Space Knight on this call, but uh, yeah, I mean, I've been I've been talking about my love of Rom as long as anybody would possibly listen. So to do something that even has echoes of that, like just a an alien in a suit coming down to Earth to, to sort of either help or cause a problem, is it's a blast to work on. Like, I've had so long to think about what I would do with this kind of thing that when I finally got to talking to Gabriel Rodriguez, the artist, about it, um, we ended up going in completely different directions and just making something up all new. And it's it's really been fun. In fact... I'm driving down the freeway yesterday. I was coming back in San Diego after a weekend away, and there's now a billboard for Onyx that's uh, Harris, the big casino hotel down here, and IDW sort of do this joint thing every year for Comic-Con. And so now Onyx is now welcoming people to uh, to San Diego for the con, which is just amazing to see. Yeah, people on the road as they as they head to San Diego. I, I saw on your blog the uh, the billboards. Congratulations. Yeah, it's that's, really fun. That- that's fantastic. The book Onyx comes out next uh, next Wednesday, July for or two Wednesday. Yeah, no, well, July first. It is next Wednesday, yeah. July first. Okay, there you go. Excellent. And yeah, what else? What, what would you like to tell us about it? 
Uh, well, it's uh, like I say, it's the first thing that I've I've worked with Gabriel Rodriguez on that we've created ourselves. Like he and I, he's got a relationship with IDW that goes back just before mine. You know, he started working on the CSI comics back in probably late 2003, which was IDW was barely publishing comics at that point. They'd only done uh, 30 Days of Night and a couple Ashley Wood art books. So CSI was the first licensing that they'd ever done. And Gabe came to them through one of the uh, studios down in South America. And so that's where I first got to know his stuff. And I kind of recognized early on, like, how good he was and how he could be doing bigger and better things. So ever since then, I've tried to more and more kind of shape his career in a way that I thought would benefit his his talent. So he and I went on to do things like that uh, George Romero zombie movie. Uh, we did Neil Gaiman's Beowulf adaptation. We did... Uh, the 12 parts Clyde Barker book adaptation. And then from there is when it's kind of like with Gabe, whenever I would show him to artists, I mean, to writers, like when I showed him to Clyde Barker and same with when I showed him to Joe Hill for lock and key, I kind of present four sort of shitty options. And then Gabriel, just to make it sure like there's no way you can't not pick Gabriel for your project. You know, you, you, you make them feel like they have the choice, like you're you're making them feel like it's their say, but meanwhile, there's really only one right choice to make. And I mean, obviously Gabe showed on both those things, like how how good he was and how well suited he was. And I think Lock and Key is the thing that really sort of woke the world up to how talented he was. Which then caused me all kinds of st- I I seem to keep taking on projects that cause me extra stress because here Onyx is the project that's following Lock and Key. So Lock and Key is the biggest thing of his career. I mean, he did a little Nemo or fine. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. The little Nemo book, but being an all ages thing that didn't quite maybe grab the same audience that was buying lock and key. So now with Onyx, we're hoping to capture even more of those people, but it's, you know, it's the thing that follows lock and key and lock and key to me is it's a book that deserves to be up there with Sandman and preacher is just one of the all time great comic series. So I just hope people don't read this and go, man, what a waste of Gabe's talent. <laughs> I, I certainly hope not. Well, it's nice that you guys are uh, doing something, though, that, you know, for him, definitely different muscles from Lock and Key. And, frankly, I love those CSI books. I, I remember when those books were coming out. Max Collins. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. He did. Absolutely. With them. And then uh, it was fun. Gabe didn't draw this one, but it was fun to do the series where we killed Rich Johnson because, Tim, we have all <laughs> thought about killing Rich Johnson. One way or another. <laughs> That's funny, and you say that as a former contemporary, as someone that was covering comics from back in the day for Movie Poop Shoot. Oh yeah, sure. That's very. That's, funny. that's probably where I got to know him back then. Yeah, which which is sort of the the segue then back to the Comic Book Galaxy thing. Was that's through Comic Book Galaxy is where I uh, got to know creators like Steve Niles, and then Niles and I kept in touch after the Movie Poop Shoot thing. Um, so then when the IDW job opened up, the editor-in-chief job opened, Niles was the one who called me and said, hey, would you ever consider taking this job? And I said, man, I've never even thought about it. Like, I'm familiar with IDW. I bought 30 Days as a comic just off the rats because it looked interesting to me and I liked Ashley Wood stuff. But mm-hmm. I, I had no idea. You know, it was one of those things where I always wanted to work in comics and just figured there's no way. You know, I'm not in New York. It was one of the kind of pre-internet or sort of early days of the internet where you just figure – Eh, I don't know anybody. I'm far away from the scene. Like, there's no way to actually break in. So you start writing comic reviews and stuff, like for Comic Book Galaxy, without ever thinking this will lead me anywhere. And it first leads me to an odd fight with Kevin Smith when he he took exception to one of my reviews of uh, his Green Arrow comic. 
And then that somehow led to me getting hired at Movie Poop Shoot. And then both those things led to the IDW job. So just, it's one of those things, like when I, I've talked to my college writing club a couple times, and I just tell people, like, there's no real set path to getting into comics, but just just take things when they're offered. Try things, and you never know. Like, I never knew this stuff was going to lead anywhere, but I just tried these different things. And then suddenly Niles is calling saying, hey, would you ever consider being the editor-in-chief at IDW? Okay. <laughs> Wild. And that's, you know, I wanted to ask, what uh, what's it like working with Ted, Ted Adams? Ted is, I mean, I've, I've never had a job for 11 years before, you know, so just the fact that I've I've stayed here as long as it is, is is a testament to just the company culture and working for Ted. Like, Ted is one of the smartest people I've ever met in my life, certainly one of the smartest people that works in the comic industry. Um, just he runs his business like a business first, you know, where, where we've all seen a lot of these publishers go awry is they start out as fans who either whether they get money or they just have a good idea or, or you know, they spin off a comic into a company and then they quickly get over their heads. And I mean, even Image, like Image did a great job bringing things back from the brink, but, you know, they all got in over their heads at the start. They, they suddenly had to go from being creators, you know, artists who became writers who then had to become businessmen. And it's a lot to contend with trying to, to, to run those different sides of the business. So, Ted's a guy that he doesn't have those aspirations to draw a comic or to write a comic. I mean, which is funny. I say that as he's currently writing a uh, Tricky Man adaptation for us. But, you know, he's a business guy first, so he runs this as a business. So we make sure everybody's always paid on time. You know, every everything that you expect from a proper business happens, not not sort of the horror stories that we've all experienced in comics. Understood, and I and I mean again, we've we've watched the evolution of IDW, um, as you say, you know, starting with Thirty Days of Night, but then alongside of it, all the licenses, and you know, now it's now it's there is this interesting mix of of original stuff and and licenses, and you know, I mean, how how do you see in in broad strokes how the company has changed? I want to, I mean, some of the stuff I will talk about in, in a second, the the comic history stuff you guys do, but yeah, I mean, like where where do you, you know, IDW just has this very distinct position in the market based on the product, and and it just seems like there there are a bunch of different ideas that all kind of melded together. But what is your actual experience? It's funny that, that I've had a couple of retailers say, you know, I don't I don't know who IDW is. You guys do so much stuff that you know it's hard to to pin you down to what your identity is. And I go, well, that is our identity. Like you're, you're summing it up for us. Like we try to be all these different things to all these different people. You know, if you like art books and you like that kind of thing, you know, we've got that. If you want licensed comics, you know, we do that. We do a good number of creator owned books that at times tend to get overshadowed by the licensed stuff. But, you know, we still do a lot of books that creators bring to us or that are developed with individual voices. Um, and then from there, the diversity is the other thing that really keeps me here at IDW is I think we've diversified in ways that nobody else has done. Um, and Ted encourages different things and trying different things that, that others maybe wouldn't. And I think the Artist Editions is a great example of that. You know, that was the thing that Scott Doomer wanted to do with his previous publisher. And they just they did not want to do that. And I get why they wouldn't have wanted to. You know, I mean, there's publishers that are good at putting out an awful lot of product and every month and the production time and expense and everything that can go into an art book like that is maybe a needless risk for some. But for us, it was like, that's, that's the kind of thing we want to be doing. So the fact that we've 
been put in this culture where where diversity is encouraged and trying different things. And, you know, they don't always work, but when they do, they work in a great way. So now being able to point just anybody, tell me what you like, and we've got something for you. You're a kid. We've got kids' comics for you. You don't know where comic book stores are. Well, we've got kids' comics in places like Walmart and Target in these, you know, micro comic fun packs that we do. You like art books, we've got that. You like strip books, we've, you know, got a good array of those now. And I think it's just that, the ability to do all these different kinds of things that has kept it so interesting all these years. You mentioned kids' comics. I guess I should, uh, while I'm thinking about it, give a few seconds to My Little Pony. And that's certainly the Brony explosion has has been mutually beneficial for the license and for you guys. It has been amazing. Yeah, when we 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 always try to prognosticate. You know, you get these licenses and you think, well, here's kind of what we expect this one to do, just based on either sort of similar sales history for like titles or something. This one came out of the gate and blew us away in a way that we never saw coming. Because um, it's great that it's it's one of those comics like when I was a kid, you know, or when you were a kid, we were re- we would read Avengers. And if you read Avengers and you're 10 or you're 25, you got the same or you got different things out of it, but it worked for you. It wasn't like, well, this is a kid's comic. This is a grown-up comic. It was just a good comic that told a fun story. And I think comics like Ponies are doing that, too. You know, if you're a 25-year-old brony or you're a 6-year-old girl or you're a 45-year-old, you know, I mean, there's there's something in there to like no matter what your age is. And I think that's that's the key is, is all ages comics kind of get – same reputation that YA books get is like, oh, they're aimed at this this tiny group of younger people. Like, no, they're not. They're all ages. I mean, literally that. Like, they appeal across the board, so they're not just aimed at kids, or they're not just aimed at a select group. Well, I, knowing the, the a few of the pony uh, creators, like Katie Cook and Tony Fleece, uh, they're they're good friends. Uh, I've met Andy before as well, and I mean, the great thing is they love the product. And they, they, you know, they put themselves in the mindset. And that's, you know, I, I was really part of that generation in the uh, mid to late 70s that really suffered when uh, licenses went to lesser publishers. And they really were just kind of hacked out there. And I think a lot of licensed books did get the reputation of just not being good. And I am pleased to say that not only in my, the case of My Little Pony, but even the, the, the licenses I've mentioned, like Star Trek and, and you know Doctor Who when you had the license and stuff, you had people working on the stuff that really loved it. And, uh, and, and you know again, you had these kind of special ideas. I know some of the My Little Pony uh, you know, miniseries ideas that Katie has told me about over the last couple of years. They've been hilarious, and it's like that's great, you know. I mean, and, and I'm sure the Bronies and the and the Pony fans love them, and they they're they're entertaining stories that you would want to either see as a, a cartoon film or a television series, and that's awesome that you know they're they're even cooler as a comic. Well, that's why when we hire people like Marguerite Scott, you know, she writes for the Transformers animated series. She also can write the comics, so they, there are a lot of people now that can sort of cross back and forth, and I think that's one thing that differentiates licensed books now from when you and I were kids is even when those licenses went to some of the majors, I mean, let's be honest, there were some, there were some pretty bad licensed comics. I mean, even, yeah, man. even Star Trek, like we were also, or Star Wars, I mean, we were all so starved for more Star Wars content that we're accepting these comics with, you know, big green bunnies running around and stuff that just didn't at all feel like the movies, but that's, it's also because licensed comics were never, they were never thing where you're never going to pull your your Chris Claremont, although I guess he did some. But I mean, you're not going to pull your A-list talent at the time off of X-Men or Spider-Man and put on a licensed book. You're going to put your your sort of journeyman guys on there. And at times you get guys like Bill Mantlo, who 
elevated the material far beyond the source toys, you know, but other times you just got what they were. They were th- sort of third-tier creator teams doing, you know, sort of third-tier work compared to the main Marvel stuff. So I think now, and a lot of that too, is they were also hamstrung by licensors who didn't, they didn't get what comics were. Comics were kids' publications, and they were there just to help sell toys. And when the Transformers were launching a new figure, Hasbro could say, okay, Marvel, drop this figure into your next issue and help us sell toys. And now Hasbro approaches things like, you know what, go make good comics. You make good comics and make people like the Transformers, it's going to help sell the toys without us being crass and commercial about it. So I think just everybody's kind of growing and accepting of what comics can be rather than just seeing them as a, a way to shill for their toys has just helped everything. And I mean, for us at IDW too, like I grew up on all that crap. So I read these comics that at the time I thought were good, Chris Star and He-Man and all this stuff. And then you realize like, man, they really weren't very good. Um, so I saw a lot of what, what didn't work. You know, I experienced it firsthand. So now mm-hmm. to be at IDW, it's kind of like when you have a shitty teacher and you go, if I'm ever a teacher, I'm going to improve upon the bad stuff that that guy's done. Like I always said, you know, if I'm ever in a position to do these kind of comics, like I'm going to do my best to improve upon what, what I hated as a kid and try to make them good and, treat them like A-list properties, because plus, they are our A-list properties. You know, we don't have Batman or Spider-Man or that kind of thing. We can put very top talent on these books and make them, hopefully, what the fans really want to keep coming back and reading. Very cool. And uh, back to Onyx for a second. Now, Onyx is, uh, are you going to go on a, that what seems to be the norm now of, like, five-issue arc? trade and see how things go and then move on to the next one? Uh, four issues right now for the first okay. line, yeah, but but that, because it is hard to launch a new creator-owned series, so we'll see how it goes, and hopefully, you know, the initial numbers on issue one were very nice and encouraging, so hopefully we can do more of these, yeah, but I never want to come out of the gate with forcing retailers on it. Here's an ongoing series before you know what it is, so let everybody get a taste, and that's the same reason we did the five-page, the free comic that we put up a month ago is while people are ordering the book, you know, I, I kind of get to tread both sides of things at, in my position at IEW, right? I commiserate with what retailers go through ordering on a non-returnable basis and not knowing what a new series is. So I try to make it as as transparent a thing for them as possible. Like, here's what you're getting if you order this book. And hopefully that helps them, you know, sort of make a better informed decision. Is there a specific sort of creator-owned book that IDW looks for, or is it, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm certain when a list writer or artist says, hey, I want to do something, you guys make it happen. In fact, your own collaboration with Ashley Wood, uh, Zombies versus Robots, I mean, essentially that's, am I right? Isn't that kind of how Zombies versus Robots happened? Yeah, it happened. So Ashley's in our office back in like 2005, um, just came to visit, he lives in Australia, but he was there and he just said, you know... I like to draw robots, and I like to draw zombies. Why don't you write me a comic with those in it? I go, all right, well, those things don't belong together at all. So let's, let's embrace the ridiculousness of that premise then and, and make them fight, and a fight that should completely be one-sided, and then treat it as kind of a, a piss take on the versus comics. and just right? like We literally tried to write a comic that seemed unfilmable, like there were no human characters. I mean, the one that was in the first issue was this infant, and then she dies by issue two, and so it's just, it's fun to us to see that, that they're actually developing a film around it because it was always thought of as like, well, here's the thing where there's no character arcs, you know, there's no growth. The characters don't experience anything and learn from it. They they are just, on both sides, they're automatons. So it's it's just been uh, 
just basically our way to have kind of goofy, mindless fun. And it seems like it's it's worked for a lot of people. <laughs> well, and it, it reminds me of the first exposure I had to Ash's stuff. And I never remember because I'm not – oh, it was Metal Gear Solid. I was going to say I'm not a gamer, so I, I don't remember the names of various games and stuff that stuff comes from. My first exposure to Metal Gear Solid was Ash's uh, IDW stuff. And I'm like, God, this stuff is amazing looking. Who is this guy? And it's oh yeah, that's a game. That's a game comic. I'm like, I don't care. I'm like, <laughs> Jesus Christ, it looks amazing. And it's fun that there's guys like him who can completely thrive. I mean, he now has this amazing career of, of being a fine artist and a toy maker and a painter and just sure. doing comics when he wants to. But uh, I love that there's guys like, like Ash and there's guys like Eric Powell, people that always get asked like, what would what Marvel character would you most like to work on? And they go, what makes you think that's the end game for us? Like the end game for us is to go create our own stuff and just do what we want. So Ash, you know, cause I think, I think I first saw his stuff on a, uh, there's an X-Men annual. It was one of those sideways comics, you know, <laughs> that Joe Casey wrote. And I go, this is really interesting stuff. It's not at all what you expect to see in a Marvel comic. You know, it's kind of, kind of felt like a modern day Bill Sincavage or Kent Williams kind of thing. And then I, I saw him in Hellspawn and the same kind of thing. And it was like, this guy doesn't, he doesn't belong on a normal superhero comic, but he should be doing idiosyncratic kinds of things. And luckily he's been able to thrive doing just that. That's great. Well, and I'm glad that he's willing to, you know, you guys are smart enough to like make the deal with them and, and keep things going. Now is, uh, is there only going to be like six issues of uh, zombies versus robots? And then because of Ash's other commitments, he's got to take a break. I mean, I know it's been a, in a re- irregular schedule that, yeah, you know, we've been doing miniseries, and he drifted off for a few years just to build up his 3A toy company. Um, and now he's back just doing covers, and he's doing a spread for each issue, and I'm doing new stories with uh, with other artists. Um, and we're probably going to run, I don't know, 10 or 12 issues on this one. But it's fun because the spread he's been doing, I've, I've been hand-lettering those myself because I like to try to get a sense of what I'm asking of various creators. You know, when when I'm pushing them on deadlines, like I've tried learning to color, which is – way too hard and time consuming for me, but uh, you know, I've tried it just so I know when I'm telling a color. So I need those tomorrow. Like I know what I'm asking instead of just making totally unrealistic demand. So by that same token, I've been trying to letter these things with ash just to, to do a bit more, more raw style than like a computer font, which just doesn't really suit his artwork at all. So um, anyway, uh, on VBR, we're doing that. And then we're launching another series together that a guy named Nelson Daniel, who drew Judge Dredd for us for a few years, is drawn with me called String Divers, which is um, done with Ash and based on one of Ash's toy series. Very cool. That's awesome. I thought you were going somewhere. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That's excellent. Yeah, much like String Divers, I'm not entirely sure where it's going, but it's a lot of fun. It's these characters that sort of it, – it, it works with a lot of quantum physics, you know, which I know is a, a hot-button issue for comics. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Um, no, but it's it's a fun science filled kind of thing with these characters that shrink down to to literally travel down the the theoretical strings that make up our universe. And so in a way, I'm getting to to play at that scale. Then with Onyx, like I'm getting to relive sort of all these things I really loved as a a kid reading comics. Excellent, man. That's that's very cool. Um, I well, you know, Onyx. I, I think a lot of ROM fans are probably very excited about Onyx and the the potential there for that sort of comic book to come back. And I'm glad that you know you guys kind of had the epiphany of well, all right, instead of writing ROM fan fiction, let's do our own thing and and make it you know 
cool and interesting. And uh, no, the designs look great. I like. I, I and it's and I don't think you have to worry about any lawsuits from that standpoint. I mean, for God's sake, I mean it, it's definitely a different design. There's some similarities, but not not a ton. Yeah, I like uh, that. Uh, you know, just like like Robocop. Basic silver. Well, I mean, basic, yeah, you know. Robocop is in a silver suit. Like, there's all kinds of there's precedents. sure, man. You know, the original Iron Man armor. I could I could point to all these other precedents if I ever get grilled on that. But uh, it's funny because when we we first started developing teasers for Onyx, we would show this little speck in outer space. And like I said, I've been talking about ROM for so many years that people saw the first few teasers. They saw just a glimpse of a metal suit, and everybody goes, "Oh my God, ROM! They're announcing ROM!" And then, like the fourth teaser came out, and it was it was Onyx, and I, I felt like I mean I'm probably imagining, but I felt like I could hear the internet just deflate and go. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so now it's up to us to like bring them back and hope they don't pick up a comic and go. Hope it's like oh hey, it's not like Ram at all. It's something different. Fair enough, and I can <laughs> I can appreciate that. No, Celia and I were uh, Tim Celia and I were talking about Ram. Uh, a while ago and stuff, and yeah, you know, like just whatever, whatever, you know, tangle uh, legally that's in, and 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 just also that these things were invented and just kind of discarded, and it's like you know, again, it was, hey man, we're just trying to make toys. We we weren't thinking beyond you know selling for Christmas, and if it doesn't work, then you know we'll move on to the other thing, or all right, it had its run, now let's move on to something else. But you know, again, I'm talking too much about ROM and not not enough about Onyx. Uh, you know, uh, is are there? Well, oh, I mean, I know. I could, I could. I'm sure you could throw down with Ram. It's just that you know, we. <laughs> we I want to. I want to give you and, and your story your due. Right now is 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 Onyx. You know, without going too far into the story, um, you know, it, it it kind of is just like you know the uh, the warrior who fell from space. Basically, it's just one. One one woman. Am I am I right? Is it? Do we know it's one woman, correct? Yeah, and we get we get little bits of backstory of what brought her here. I mean, there's a little bits of that in the uh, the free zero issue that we put online, which is basically she was on another world trying to help these aliens fight off this uh, this alien spore that sort of infected their planet down to the core. She failed in that, and the spore took off, and then she tracks it to its next planet, which is now Earth. And so as as she arrives on Earth. The spore is already here and infecting and mutating the populace. And some of the populace, as we find out, are, is kind of they've already been mutated. Like there's there's hints of Dr. Moreau in here and there's hints of the various near future things that we've we've enjoyed, you know, Akira and other things. Um, cool. And it just sort of like this blender of all of the influence that Gabriel and I have had. And it's funny, like he's you know, he grew up and spent his entire life in Santiago, Chile. I've been California born and raised and we basically have almost the identical influences and stuff. So it just, as we're talking about these things, like, what about this? Remember that? And you go, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that. And that the blade, yeah, it's kind of like crawl. And so it's, it's been a lot of fun just developing this thing with him where we both realized that a lot of things that we loved as kids have influenced what we want to do in a science fiction story. And that was what Gabe was really wanting to do next was not only create his own, his own character, his own creation. And he's never done that before. So this is the first thing that we've created together and that he's ever created at all. So we're, we're only taking the credit as uh, co-creators and storytellers. Like I didn't want there to be any, any delineation between writer and artist, because at a certain point, the stuff Gabe is contributing to this is far beyond just being the artist on the book. Like I'm working more Marvel style. We're talking um, either on, 
you know, email or Skype or, or just kicking plots back and forth. And then he would draw the pages and sort of paste it out himself. And then I'll go back to scripted. So it's, it just feels like such a more collaborative way of doing things than my normal way of writing full script. No, clearly the artist gets more invested in stuff if you really let them co-plot and, you know, do their thing. And that's, that's great. And like I said, no, I've liked the designs I've seen so far. I think, I think it's a cool looking character and stuff. And, you got a, you got a, a good sci-fi scenario set up, and I, I sounds neat. Yeah, he's, so. he's he's been really good about you know as he's working on every page, um, putting things up on Twitter and keeping people you know engaged and wondering what this thing is. So I'm I'm very excited to see this book launch next week and uh, gauge the reaction on it. Excellent, man. Um, I'm curious about some other things going on at IDW. If I can uh, get your point of view, um, are you able to talk about um, like I know every year there's been a new artist edition. Um, I don't know if at San Diego, if yeah, I'm sure it's already been announced. What uh, is is the Battlestar Galactica one? Is that what's uh, going to be there? Or? No, in fact, that one's not us. That's that's some. Oh, I'm sorry, man. That's somebody who copied us. Uh, yeah. Hard to keep track of you know, at this point. Hey, congratulations on coming up, frankly, with a format. And I'm sorry that there are competitors, but um, I- I'm really glad that this artist edition movement has happened. And I mean, certainly, there's a lot of great stuff to cherry pick and everything. But yeah, tell me, like for for uh, San Diego, do you guys have a a new artist edition exclusive coming out? Is it Shield with Steranko, or have I already missed that one? No, the Shield one is already out, but the second Steranko okay. book is still in the works. He's doing all the design work on that himself, so uh, it's, absolutely. <laughs> so you know it's moving at Steranko speed, but of course it's going to look great. Yeah, absolutely, man. No, no, no. They're always worth it when they finally come out. Uh, th- I think that's excellent. Is I haven't seen the Shield book yet. Um, what w- the great thing about the artist editions too is to see you know, where the whiteout was or where the where the little piece of scotch tape was and stupid crap like that and things like that, some of the, the imperfections and everything. Yeah, and the notes to the colorist and sort of yes. the script direction, all of those things. And I mean, and, and Steranko's stuff, seeing at that size, and he drew these things, like, it's a massive book. It's, you know, it's as big as the Wally Wood book, if you saw that, the first one we did. I did, I did. I think, uh, and Steranko, in fact, is nominated for an Eisner this year, so we'll see how that all goes. But yeah, at the con... Let's see. We'll have the Jack Kirby Commandy book. Um, I don't think anybody's seen the Mike Zek book yet, but that'll be there. Uh, cool. The Frank Miller Daredevil book. Uh, what Zek? Uh, what Zek stuff? Is it Captain America? Or? Some Captain America, some Punisher, some Secret Wars, and then some covers. The uh, the Captain America Annual Eight. You know the the classic Wolverine Captain America cover. I think that is a fold out spread in there. Um, wow. But yeah, there's at least a, a couple, if not more. Uh, Secret War stories. There's a couple of the uh, Spider-Man Craven's Last Hunt stories. Oh, terrific! Wow. Yeah, cool. the Punisher, like Captain. I mean, the uh, Captain America with John Beatty. Like it's, it's just beautiful stuff. Like I love that we're getting into this era now because, as much as I like things like Wally Wood, like I didn't grow up on that. Like I, I certainly admire it for what it is, but <laughs> I understand. You know, getting to see Frank Miller's Daredevil and uh, and Mike Zach and the John Byrne book and the Walt Simonson books and like those are the things that really hit me in my sweet spot. Sure. Oh, absolutely, man. No, I, I, and 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 you're absolutely right. Everyone's childhood was the golden age, and I and I and I totally appreciate that. Um, you know, I think I was lucky in the '70s, uh, and it's so funny. I just bought uh, the most recent uh, Tomorrow's uh, publication back issue, and they're talking about the hundred-page uh, spectaculars that DC used to release, yeah. and Marvel always had a healthy reprint. Uh, 
you know, policy as well. But the great thing was with DC, because of the history of the company, you were getting stories from the 40s and the 50s in the 70s along, alongside the new stuff. And so immediately I became a Dick Sprang fan or, you know, when, when Wally Wood was doing uh, All-Star, uh, all, yeah, All-Star Comics and it was uh, the Justice Society when they came back. And, uh, it, you know, Wally Wood was thinking um, – Keith Giffen and Wally Wood were doing uh, Golden Age Superman in the early 70s. And it was just so exciting and everything. So, yeah, I mean, that's why I can uh, appreciate some of the the older uh, guys as well. But, yeah, man, no, and uh, Jack Kirby Commandy, that was uh, that was my childhood. I was a teeny teeny little boy buying twelve cent comics back then, so uh, that's that's terrific. And uh, and also, there's the artist editions, but uh, the American Library of Comics stuff that IDW puts out as well. I just love that stuff. And uh, I think I've told you, I was telling you off the air that is it Dean, is it Mulvaney? Yeah, Mulvaney. How, how say, Mulvaney yeah. Thank you. So I was going to say I never get his name, his last name right. Uh, Dean's work on that stuff is just so great. And again, it was way before my time, but I've become such a, I mean, we all loved the broad strokes seeing Alex Raymond, Flash Gordon images, but my God, I became such a Rip Kirby fan because of Alex Raymond and, and just, you know, seeing those books and uh, Chris Somney and I just go on about how much we love uh, the reprinted comic strip stuff. And you just appreciate the level, not only the level of art, but the level of storytelling, because as we were saying before about all ages books today, those newspaper strips were made for a general audience, and adults were enjoying Steve Canyon uh, as much as uh, kids were. And, you know, uh, Kniff knew that, and he had to write to that level. And Alex Raymond and, and uh, the guys uh, that were making Rip Kirby knew that. Or, uh, God, I love, uh, you know, Secret Agent Corrigan. Uh, it's with, it's uh, amazing stuff. Yeah, and it's funny, like, when Dean first got involved with us, Dean used to run Eclipse Comics back in the day, and Ted Adams yes, used to work for Dean. So that's where their association started. And we, oh, so, cool. So we started doing the Dick Tracy strip reprints before Dean came on board. And then he saw those. And as soon as he came on board and said, you know, I could do those better. Like he made the books bigger because we were doing them probably similar yes. to, to the Peanuts books because we were new at this. And, you know, I will admit that there was some some trying to emulate the books that we really liked. And then Dean said, no, no, this stuff's got to be bigger. You got to really make the strips so it, it it lets you appreciate them. So he started doing adding all the front matter material, which is yeah. You know, if you ever have time to pour through that stuff, like it's amazing to read about that. Oh my god, yeah. And then then making yeah, the books yeah. bigger, the care he puts into retouching the strips, like, and those Alice Toth Alex Toth books he's done, like yes, just everything that Library of American Comics does, like it's it's Dean with you know help from his uh, couple other people, but largely that it's all Dean doing the stuff, and Dean's picking the material, and Dean is finding the material which can be as big of a challenge as just deciding on what to publish is you know how to find good copies of it and and then how to turn them into nice books and now like we're publishing superman or we're publishing spider-man and it blows my mind that you know we're publishing these things of these characters that we all love and these things you know like in the case of spider-man i grew up reading that stuff as a kid and now to have oh, these, yeah. in these amazing formats like the format they finally deserve to be seen in it's it's really fun for us you know as it is for everybody else well, and I, uh, I, you know, I was buying those Superman dailies, and uh, I was talking to Mark Wade about it a, a year or so ago, and uh, we were at dinner and uh, discussing it. I'm like, "Have you seen those things?" He goes, "Yeah." Who do you think they got the uh, the strips from? And I'm like, "Oh, of course, same money." <laughs> and that's great that Mark provided the the comic strips and stuff. And I I love um, the Superman Silver Age ones in particular because if people haven't picked them up, they are 
the same stories as what was on the stands during the 12 cent era, but it's where it's um, Kurt Swan in the book. It's Wayne boring on the comic strip and the story pacing is slightly different. So they become, they're adaptations of the same material, but they are done. they're, They're like alternate versions of like these same stories. And they're all, you know, the, the super baby from Krypton or whatever, the, the fun Mort Weisinger era Superman stuff. But if you love that stuff, it's like, hey, did you, it's like finding that um, footage they didn't use in Spinal Tap. <laughs> right, and, yeah. You know, and, on the, and on the DVD, it's there, and it's almost the second movie. But, well, I mean, it's... All, yeah, they're, and they're all just so... They're fun and charming and playful. Yes. And just kind of re- they're all the things that kind of remind you of why, why we all love comics so much. Absolutely, man. And, and the hi- history you guys are doing for Archie, Jesus. Is it are you guys or is that Dark Horse? Uh, no, well, it's, it's kind of both. Dark Horse is doing. Right. Dark Horse was doing the big sort of the the masterworks versions. We were doing oversized. Um, I, I think theirs were black and white. I, I, well, or at least their covers are black and white. We were doing we were doing slightly different material anyway. But you know, in my mind, like that Archie material is so good and fun. Like that's another thing I grew up reading. In fact, it's fun now that I have a nine year old daughter and she's just obsessed with Archie. In fact, I've got a lot of my old digests and she's devouring those like I did. So it's fun to be able to actually publish the stuff that, that really helped foster my love of comics back when I was a kid. That's excellent, man. No, I, I, I really think that's a, a fun, interesting wrinkle of, of what IDW does. And again, uh, preserving the history of comics, which I think is really important because nothing that that's where my uh, John Byrne fan for, you know, gets up in a bunch is when you, you hear a kid go, wow, that's the first time that ever happened in the comics. And it's like, <laughs> nah, no, no, that's not true. Well, it's the first time I saw it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations. But that was inspired by this. Like, God, my, my favorite example was, and I and don't get me wrong, I and I'm talking G.I. Joe now, but this is, I think, old G.I. Joe, the, the silent issue with Snake Eyes. And everything, oh, my God, oh, this is, uh, and it's like, yeah, Stereco did that with uh, S.H.I.E.L.D., and, you know, that's where it came from, but no problem. You know, we well, like this, too. Oh, it's yeah, cool. well, Peter David has that funny story where he was talking to some kids that were wearing Spider-Man shirts and he goes oh spider-man they go yeah i love the movie he goes oh yeah well i, I write the comic books they go there's spider-man comic books yeah so yeah. We, we still have a ways to go to reach everybody but uh i mean i think having guys like scott doombeer and dean are such a like they're they're two of the best comic book historians doing stuff that sort of transcends just making good books and doing important books because it is the kind of thing where it's such a a move forward medium where everybody wants to sort of get to the next hot thing that you can easily lose track of the people that built this industry. And I, you know, one thing I love about working in this business is reading the stuff that like reading the old Disney comics or reading the old gold key comics. And I mean, it's sad that they were uncredited, the guys that worked on them, but at the same time, just knowing that there were these guys that just worked on this stuff. Like they just tore it away making comic pages. And here we are sort of following what they did. And, and so to be able to do these books with the guys that, that really built the industry and, and, you know, to, show their work in the way it deserves to be seen and remind people what came before is just such an important thing. So I, I love the stuff that they're doing. I love that we're able to do that for that reason. Now we started recording um, and you were telling me, and this is when I was saying, you know, Hey, uh, make sure that you keep this for posterity. I don't know if we got it on the record. Uh, are, are, can you, can you say some, speaking of that, uh, a special Marvel project that you're, uh, you're working on? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's another thing that has been so nice at IDW is we've done these books that other 
publishers. Like it, it sometimes we go, you know, we're we're publishing our competitors. Like that that seems insane, but again, you know, Marvel and DC are very good at doing the things that they do, and it, if it if it helps make them look good by us taking the production time and care to do these sort of deluxe high end books, I think everybody wins. Um, and so I love the fact that they've appreciated and re- sort of respected what we do to the point of letting us publish their stuff like this. So along the lines of the artist editions, yeah, we're doing a series of limited books through our IDW limited division where we're going to be taking classic Marvel artists or classic Marvel storylines and doing them in full color, but oversized books and then getting the artists to do, you know, hand-drawn sketches that will be sold with each one or signed tipping plates or both. So the one that we're launching with is Sal Buscema's Hulk. And it's been fun with Sal because it's, these are all stories that are handpicked by Sal, but in a lot of ways, I helped steer that or help recommend some to him because that was entirely my sweet spot of reading the Hulk was the Sal Buscema era. So Sal could go, ah, you know, I don't remember all of them. I remember liking this one. I remember the one with the absorbing man was a really good story. One of my favorites. I go, yeah, but what about these? Oh yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of this thing where we've got to just pick our favorite stories and make a book around it. And so I'm going to interview Sal and, uh, and sort of run through all the, the buildup and these stories and give them a historical context. But Ultimately, it's just a 300-page book of great Sal Hulk stories with, you know, accompanied by a uh, new hand-drawn piece of Hulk art by Sal. That's very, very cool. Are, beyond DC and Marvel, are you guys looking at any other uh, publishers? I mean, would uh, – and I'm just throwing uh, something out there, like a Don McGregor and Paul Galassi doing Sable. I mean, I guess a lot of that stuff might be creator-owned. And it would be a question of not only market viability, but the willingness of these guys, you know, to to work with you on something like that. Yeah, and I think we've had saber talks over the years. I mean, there's, it's funny because there's there's just so much of this stuff. So you try to you do get to a point where you have to pick the stuff that is really going to be our our first tier of books. And then we have, but we have our list of like, if you ask me what I want to do five years from now, you know, we have probably a list of okay, well, this year we want to do the Sal book and maybe a John Romita Jr. Spider-Man or whatever the case may be. And then two years down the line, we'd like to do this. And then I'd like to do this. So there's, there is all of that. And, and so you just try to pick and choose what, what seems to be the best thing to capture an audience now. And then what might work a couple of years down the line when you've exhausted this material. And, you know, it's, it's nice to have that embarrassment of riches out there. That there's just so much good material that deserves, you know, to be reseen and, and republished in new formats. Did you guys do the Wally Wood uh, Canon book? Uh, the Wally Wood Canon book. No. Okay, no worries. I just happened to I, I saw that recently, and that's that's one that was that was his kind of. You remember his name is Savage, the, uh, yes. the Gil Kane, which one of my favorite uh, short little uh, things, and that would make a great artist edition. Oh sure. Uh, I, I I bet, and uh, yeah, well you know, and w- Wally Wood was doing kind of adult comics his own way and canon was his kind of self-published uh action comic and stuff and, and a recent collection came out um no it's I, I i agree there's there is a lot of stuff obviously to go through and and, and well that, that is honestly the fun thing as much as i rib you know there being competitors that are doing artist edition style books now um i i love the fact that it's inspired other people or just that other you know other publishers also do great books like fantagraphics for a long time before us sure. has done amazing strip book reproduction and everything in dark horse and all the others so it's it is nice that this stuff is out there like i love the fact that there's a ronin book out there the frank miller's ronin that uh graffiti's doing as much as i would have killed somebody to publish that ourselves like i'm just happy that book exists 
Agreed. And and yeah, and and to be honest, a lot of them, you guys really are the leader, not only in terms of like currently, you know, recapturing, because as you say, Fantagraphics did it before, and, you know, Kitchen Sink, and a few, I mean, you know, that was obviously Dennis Kitchen working directly with uh, with Eisner and stuff, sure. but, you know, there's, and, and I'm assuming, too, that that original format that um, the Dick Tracy and Peanut stuff was in, was it Bill Black? Oh, yeah. I think Blackbird. Yeah, or, yeah. Because I had because uh, I had a couple of those Terry and the Pirate books and stuff over the years. Um, no, it's I, I'm glad that I would say though that the IDW stuff because of the front matter and and the the stuff that Dean puts in there and Scott puts in there and, and his books as well. It it does make it a cut above and it really does because you're you're getting the full education beyond. Hey, here's the material, enjoy, and that's great that it comes back. But it it really does help to put it in context and why it's important. And uh, God, one of my favorite IDW books is uh, the the just oversized Kniff art book that you guys put out. Yeah, uh, I love that book. And again, it just really pours through Kniff's entire career, and it's just this wonderful career retrospective. It's huge and really smart. Well, I think those books are probably one of the the more prominent examples of the way we've approached business from the start, and that is we've always kind of prided ourselves on our production values in that, you know, comics can sometimes be seen as a disposable medium in, the, in just the comic book. So we, we always try to use better paper and cover stocks and, and, you know, with all these books, we want them to be books that look good and lasting on people's bookcases. So, you know, you don't, you don't want to download the, the Bloom County library on your iPad. You want to have that on your bookshelf. And for God's sake, you sure don't ever want to try to read an artist edition on an iPad. So, you know, trying Do to get, you guys- do you guys use the phrase shelf porn? <laughs> because it's, it's been heard around the office before. Okay, all right, because yeah, Jason Wood, uh, fellow podcaster, Eleven O'clock Comics is his show. He's the first guy that I ever heard really say it, and it's true. It it really for for all of us that want to kind of curate that great bookshelf uh, and everything. I I gotta say that's why. I mean, you know, I'm looking at mine right now, and it, it it's uh, just littered with uh, IDW products. Scorchy Smith, the Noel Sickles book I'm looking at right now, two volumes of Superman and the uh, the Silver Age stuff, several Secret Agent Corrigan, several Rip Kirby's. Yeah, and even the, the more obscure things like Miss Fury, which I was never really familiar with until I, you know you start reading about Tarpe Mills and everything, and getting uh-huh. a sense of what she contributed at a time when women weren't getting that sort of work in comics and. So it is. It's great to to just be able to see some of the stuff that you know people just didn't know about. I agree. Now you know, and it's funny. That's in the zeitgeist. Certainly after what happened at uh, the Denver Comic Con, um, is Dean looking at more women in comics kind of collections and things like that? I mean, Dean Dean as looks at this stuff. Well, he tends to look at it in the same way that we decide on what licenses we want to publish, and that is. Does he like it? You know, does, is it something sure. that he has any sure. affinity for? And then sort of goes on from there. Um, I guess that's the first step. The second step is, all right, can I now find this material? Like, does this stuff exist in a form that I sure. can actually make a book out of it? So I don't think Dean is ever driven by anything other than, eh, is this is this a book that I like? Is this a book that, I, you know, I don't know if anybody else will ever want to see the gumps in a, uh, a nice edition, <laughs> but hell, I want to see it. So and. Right. And, that, and that's a good that's a good sort of example of what what Ted brings to the ownership of IDW and the leadership at IDW is when Dean says I want to publish the Gumps and we all go none of us have heard of the Gumps Dean Dean goes I don't give a shit it's good stuff I want to do it and we go okay <laughs> so well and for, go on I was just say that just that you are enabled and you are encouraged to 
do stuff because you have an affinity for it. Like if there's a thing that's a pet project of yours, Ted has never said no to that. From uh, hard uh, print stuff to digital now, I, wanna, I wanted to ask about IDW's attitude towards digital because I know that as digital was finding its footing, and it still is, definitely, but we, we've come a long way in, a, in the last four or five years, and the tablet has made a, a big leap forward. But I was always appreciative of the fact that Ted was very much a proponent of digital comics and the first one when everyone else was afraid to dip their toe in the water and fearful of how it was going to impact uh, the paper market, Ted's like, hey, all I know is you want to know how well uh, you know the digital comics are doing? Here's the number, 3%. Yeah. And it's growing. And by the way, Transformers and Star Trek really, really doing well on digital. What does that tell you? And I mean, I, I was at a couple of those uh, Diamond Retailer Breakfasts and, and listening to Ted talk, and it was just like, this is great, because I'm not, you know, no one was asking for um, any company secrets that would compromise the company, but more importantly, a real like, hey, what do you see? What do you see happening and stuff? So now I'm asking you, how, you know, five years from that three percent point, how does IDW see the digital market today? Well, the thing that we we see the most prominently is that. When, when this was all getting going, and I get it because the music industry had sort of been decimated and sure. nobody knew what was going to happen from there. So comic retailers view things the same way, like, oh, Jesus Christ, there goes our whole business. Like, there goes our livelihood. If you guys do digital comics, you know, you're going to ruin us the same way that you know, music retailers have gone out of business. So years later now, nobody has seen that happen. What they've seen is their audience has grown, their market has grown, and their customer base has grown. So as digital has gone up, so is print. So I think digital has worked in exactly the way that we had wanted, which is it either brought back people who hadn't uh, read comics before, didn't know where a comic store sure. was, were lapsed comics readers. You know, all these people that, that were sort of missed sales were able to check out comics. And a lot of those have, have then decided they'd rather read them in print or they've, they've, for whatever reason, the numbers have gone up on both sides. So the direct market has been thriving the last few years and just as digital has grown and grown. So all of the different fears that everybody's had, you know, going day and date and charging the same price and all of these things have not, they haven't had that hitting on the, uh, the print comics that everybody thought they were going to. So, and it seems to be that way in the book market too, you know, that everybody's sort of getting to this equilibrium point of, Yes, digital is still growing to some degree, but print is not dying off the way everybody thought it would. You know, everybody at first was and, – and I feel like this has always happened. Like everybody always wants to uh, sort of sound the death knell for comics. You know, like how many times have we all heard that the industry is dying and what have you and the industry keeps on thriving? So yeah, I wish we could all just calm down from that and uh, realize that comics are going to be here, you know, and comics are going to be here as long as people are around and reading and stuff. So. I, I think the digital thing has only done that. It's allowed us to reach different different readers and different audiences. And, you know, sure, there's some people that have switched, some people that do both. I mean, in my case, like, I like to read some stuff in print. I like to read some stuff in digital. I go through phases where I just can't stand digital and only want print. And I go through phases where I go, oh, I'm acquiring too much crap. I need to start switching back to digital. And I think, I think it's hit a point where it's just – it's it's just one more way to consume comics, you know, just like print is. And it's, it's not a thing that's going to hurt us. It's only going to help grow the audience. Am I right? Didn't you guys do some uh, apps for, uh, 
you know, licensed comics, like in the case of Transformers and Star Trek, that were more title specific. We did, yeah. We, we had those. We had Star Trek and uh, Transformers and a couple others and Ninja Turtles. In fact, we just relaunched right. those a week ago in all new apps that you can now. Because ever since the Comicsology um, Amazon purchase, you know, the, yes. you lost the ability to buy comics, you know, in app, which I think right. that, if anything, was the big hit to digital. You know, it. I agree. You lost the ease of just tapping on a thing and suddenly it's yours. Now you had to go through this extra step, which some people were not going to do. So our new apps now allow for in-app purchases. And, uh, you know, it's just another way to, to give people comics when and where they want them. You know, if you want them at comic stores, we will be there in very prominent fashion. And, you know, we love and support the retailer base and they are still by far our biggest customer. But the digital thing has been a nice add on to all of that. Have any of the licensors kind of said, oh, you know, we'll take care of that, thanks. You know, you just worry about, you know, making the product as far as the app goes. Or or are, are they allowing you guys to kind of do it with the comics that you license? Um, pretty much everyone to a one now is letting us do it. There were some at the start that that thought, well, we are, you know, we're, we're associated with a big movie studio, so we can do this ourselves. We don't need you. We have websites. Right. We know how to do this. And then right. six months later, you go, well, what happened? Where are the digital comics? They go, oh, God, we can't do this. And then, <laughs> you know, and then it comes back to us. So sometimes you have to let people find their own way and realize that it, uh, it ain't as easy as it seems. How big of a division of IDW is devoted to that transfer to digital? I mean, is it like this, like how, how, how labor intensive is the process? It's pretty labor intensive, and but it's. It's not that many people, you know, there's probably less than a half dozen people that work on digital and even then they okay. do some other things too. So we've got the different conversions now because we convert down to all the different formats and so there's a lot yeah. of different sizing. But once you've done some of that, it's pretty easy to to just run scripts and, and size all the different things. So it doesn't require that much uh, that much staff. It just, there's a fair amount of manpower or man hours for each person, but it doesn't require a big division or anything like that. Do you guys ever think about because I know when when digital first happened with uh, print in mind and and you see small examples of it, um, you know, kind of the kind of thing of okay, fine, I bought the magazine online, and and I mean certainly Marvel's doing it with their A and R where you're getting little videos and little commentaries and things like that, and you know things like that. Are you you know are you guys thinking along those lines? Is that down the road or is that really no? You know something. This is just people want the comic. Here's the comic. I, and it's presented in a slightly different way, but, you know. Yeah, I mean, when we first got started doing the digital thing, we were trying everything. We were doing the pan and scan. Yeah. We were doing things with sound effects. We were doing mm-hmm. pop-up balloons. So Because we, sure. we were nimble enough that we could try all these different things, and most of them didn't work. And it just seems that people just want to be able to read the comic on the device. Um, we do have some sure. things like Transformers and Star Trek that Madefire has done some very cool um, motion, sort of the next generation of what motion comics would be. You know, where mm-hmm. you get sound effects and things like that. But for the most part, it still just seems like people are just, they just want the reading experience and all that other stuff just kind of gets in the way. Understood. Understood. What else uh, at San Diego are you guys uh, promoting? That are like some of the big panels or some of the things that beyond, I don't want you to, you don't have to pre-break any announcements or anything like that, but any, any other, uh, you know, live events that you want to uh, point out uh, for people that are going to San Diego? Yeah, we've we've got we have a crazy list of creators coming. You know, people like Walt Simonson, and we've never had Mike Zach at the booth before, so he'll be there signing his artist edition. And uh, 
Oh God, I think Eric Powell signing the Goon Arts edition there. And yeah, we've got we got a lot of um exclusive covers and such. But the big thing is probably on uh on the main IDW panel that Dirk Wood and I host. He's our uh, VP of marketing. Absolutely. Uh, I know Dirk what are you talking about? The best voice in uh comic book panels, Dirk Wood. Right. He, he's him? the only guy who is he has his Sunday Comic Con voice, you know, at the start of the show. <laughs> I love Dirk. Oh, Go he's, on. he's the greatest. Yeah, so. he's hilarious. Yeah, no, I always look forward to seeing him every year. Absolutely, man. Yeah, so he and I are announcing some big things on our panel, and uh, I believe the Hasbro panel has some some very big news this time. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's exciting. Like we're as much as that show takes over our lives for you know the month leading up to it, it's a blast. Like I love to be able to get in front of people in that way and just get to see you know fans and retailers and creators and everybody all interacting to a crazy degree like that. Agreed. Absolutely. No, I'm I'm looking forward to it. It's it and you know really it's great that it happens in the middle of summer. It it, it really feels like summer camp. You know, you you spend that week in San Diego, you see everybody that you haven't seen in a year. Oh, how you doing? You know, that's great. And I mean it's crazy work and everything on the floor, but then it's nice to, you know, see everybody after hours and just you know, just in a, in a beautiful city. I, I, I still love it. I don't know, man. I mean I, I know that uh especially coming from radio, my comparison is it's like the auto show. In radio. Yeah, it's funny. I, oh, I came from an auto background, so I know the auto show well. Cause I, uh, I do those, too. <laughs> and I know is I came from sports talk radio. And seriously, and also it happened in February in Chicago. And it's like, oh, fuck, we got to do the auto show. Okay, here we go. Well, man, if you're and in we... town for any kind of extended stay, you're welcome to come by the new offices and see the new art gallery that we have open. Oh, that's nice. And, uh... Oh, thanks, man. No, you know, and I, I unfortunately, you know, it's a commando run. I'm in, in Wednesday and out Sunday, but... That said, I, I do keep wanting to go back because I do. I love San Diego. It is such a great town. That's got to make it a little bit easier given that it's in your backyard. I always forget that. Easier and harder, you know, because at a certain point you're still kind of expected to keep your real life going. So I uh, I actually yeah. started just staying at a hotel downtown because it got too hard going home every night and getting up early every day. So Sure. Oh, I can appreciate that. It's easy in the regard that if we forget something or people need a book really badly, we can run back to the office and get it for them. and. Always, yeah, driving down the freeway is a lot easier than flying cross-country. That's why the New York show is always a bit more of a burden for us. I can appreciate that. Yeah, well, what other and – it's, and it's true. IDW doesn't set up at every con. What other big cons are uh, you guys doing this year? Uh, we've been doing a bunch on a smaller basis. Like We did a show that out in – not the big Phoenix con, but another show in Arizona uh, about a month ago. We were in Las Vegas this past weekend. Um, I'm, oh, how did that go? How did Vegas go? It's good. It's a it's a smaller little show, but it's still fun to be at. I mean, that's the kind where you can really get and spend some time with uh, with the fans. So that's always fun. And then uh, Gabriel Rodriguez and I are going to Boston at the end of the month, at the end of July right. for for their show, and that's a really fun con. Excellent. Very cool. No, I you know, but I've been interested in Vegas as a market. That excuse oh, me. Um, I've been interested in Vegas as a market, not uh, not just because of you know the potential of if San Diego when the contract goes up if they're able to hold on to Comic Con or not, but really just in general the the few times that they do try to do big shows in Vegas, how has it gone and you know how it's received and you know do they have enough of a, of you know fans coming out that it's you know viable. I certainly think they could draw them there. What I worry about is that it would just you know, there would be an event at this hotel and then there'd be another event at that hotel and it would really fracture the audience a bit more. But, you know, sure. then again, I guess even downtown San Diego now, you get sort of a fractured audience because either people oh. don't go into the convention center at all and they just do some of the events around the city now or 
it is in in a lot of ways it's become like uh, Frank Miller's Ronin to use a a 30 year old <laughs> example where you know where the the the, the techno organic city has kind of grown and grown throughout like that's sure. sort of what Comic Con has become where it's just this thing that used to be just in the convention center now it spills out more and more into the city oh, every yeah. year as it goes oh, no. along. You're right, and I mean, I, I've been using the South by Southwest comparison too. Yeah, that you know, and I mean, uh, and I understand that, and yeah, you're right. I mean, and, and really, even more so this year in San Diego than years before. And I'm very interested, as both a participant and an observer, how that works out. Because the good news is, for people who can't get into the convention center, there is so much fun things to do surrounding the convention center that anyone can get to. And I think that's great. By the same token, I know a lot of things have been pushed out of the convention center to these other venues, uh, not by choice. Yeah. And, uh, and, and a lot of people aren't happy about that, frankly. Well, we're, and we're we, actually we, thinking you know, for next year, because we open in our new space, we have this, uh, we opened the San Diego comic art gallery, which right now has a bunch yeah. of Kevin Eastman stuff. And, you know, it's got not only original art, but we have a, a reproduction of his original studio with all the memorabilia and, we were thinking around that space, we might try to set it up next year for people that just couldn't get passes. You know, cause there's a lot of families that they just have sure. no idea that this thing sells out right. 11 months in advance. So right. just the people that get frustrated driving by and realizing they can't get in, like we might try to give them an alternative so they can just come, you know, see some comic related stuff and enjoy the gallery and see all Kevin's stuff and meet creators that way, too. Absolutely. No, and, I, and that's why, truly, it is great from an inclusive standpoint to, to really take advantage of that. And, I mean, I've, I've been to outdoor things at Petco or some of the things that happen in that uh, grass area surrounding the convention center and the hotels that are a lot of fun things. After hours, I mean, my God, you know, it's, it, it's totally like South by Southwest. You've got live music in the streets and just really great happenings that are just, you know, all over the place that you don't need a badge to, to attend. Um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's interesting. And yeah, like I said, I, but I know that like some of the convention specific stuff has been moved to some of these other venues. Like I said, not by choice. And I, and I find it interesting and we'll see how that all plays out. Yeah. So, <laughs> but anyway, yeah, that's regardless, we're all still looking forward to it. Absolutely. No, no. And it's a great happening and uh, it's just days away as much as the debut of Onyx uh, right. coming before, <laughs> before, uh, uh, Comic-Con, uh, July 1st. Just uh, uh, two Wednesdays away, and uh, as we're recording this, I might, it might come out after uh, this week's uh, Wednesday, but uh, by July 1st, you can find your issues of Onyx and uh, check out the uh, sci-fi spectacle that Chris Ryle has, uh, has thrown together. That and uh, more Zombies vs. Robots and uh, other things coming up. Nice. appreciate those plugs. There you go. Chris Ryle and Rob Williams on today's Word Balloon. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, we've got uh, neat programming coming up uh, around the 4th. And as I lead into uh, Comic-Con week, um, be sure to stick around. Uh, I wanted to make sure because, you know, we're heading into holiday weekend and boom, right after the 4th, it's time for Comic-Con. Holy crap. Um, they're already starting to release the schedules and uh, wanted to make you aware that uh, I will be a part of uh, two panels at comic-con this year uh a spotlight on art and franco well deserved that's going to be happening on thursday at uh, 4 30 and i'll give you more uh, building information and all that but uh, seeing as that they've uh, started to release the schedule i can make that announcement i can also tell you that saturday at noon at the san diego library uh i will be uh, hosting the uh, 10th annual podcaster all-star panel 
uh, featuring myself and John Mayo from Comic Book Page, and a very special guest that's uh, going to join us, and that's Greg Pak, the uh, writer of Action Comics, and uh, of course, uh, you remember fondly his runs on Planet Hulk and Hercules and so many other great books, uh, the, the wonderful collaboration uh, for the Code Monkey book with Jonathan Colton, and really, really neat stuff. So really excited to have uh, Greg part of the panel. Uh, that'll be on Saturday at noon at the library, and I'll, again, give you more details as we inch closer to Comic-Con. But my God, we're less than two weeks away as I'm recording this. I'm plotting, I swear. But uh, it's going to be a lot of fun and uh, looking forward to seeing everybody and, uh, you know, getting some good programming to bring back to you, the Word Balloon listeners, but also uh, hopefully provide some uh, at uh, at these two panels. It's going to be a great time. Word Balloon is brought to you today by InStock Trades at InStockTrades.com. Neat books are happening at InStock Trades. Great savings, sometimes up to 42% off, sometimes more. And uh, also, don't forget it, you'll uh, receive free shipping when your orders are $50 or more. And uh, they'll make it easy because they've got great books that are available now. Things like the JSA Omnibus Hardcover Volume 3. This is uh, Jeff Johns and Dale Eaglesham uh, back uh, doing the Justice Society, the classic Justice Society, old and new. And uh, really one of my favorite runs in uh, you know the last 15 years or so. You get it off uh, 15, 50%, 5 uh, It's $62.50. Well, even without trying, boom, you're right there. Uh, you can also get things like uh, the all-new Captain America premiere hardcover, Hydra Ascent. That's uh, the first arc uh, featuring Sam Jones as Cap. Pretty neat stuff. It is uh, 50% off, just $12.49. Rick Remender and Stuart Immerman doing excellent work on uh, Captain America. You can also get uh, Minions. Is this from Boom? No, excuse me, it's from Titan. Titan Books is doing a Minions comic called Banana. Of course it's called Banana. What else would it be? Uh, 25% off. It's only $5.24. I don't know, Minions. I'm interested to see how they pull off the minions in comic form. Uh, Secret Six, Trade Paperback Volume 2, Money for Murder, uh, drawn by my pal Nicholas Scott, Scott draw, written by my pal uh, Gail Simone. Uh, the book is 42% off and just $11.59. Uh, just a couple of the uh, things you can find at InStockTrades.com. Check it out for yourself today. John Sutcher saying thanks for listening to Word Balloon. I will uh, do my best to... Heal the voice uh, before our next episode, but I will be releasing one right before the 4th of July weekend, so you'll have something to listen to then. And then the plan is to do one more uh, week of Comic-Con, and uh, that way you'll have something, to, you know, fresh to listen to, you know, either Tuesday, hopefully either Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday. Not sure which day yet, but uh, it's uh, got some really, really neat interviews already in the bag and also a couple of things scheduled that uh, you're really going to enjoy and uh, very happy with, as always. You know, I'm on a good run. Uh, you know, that always happens. Interesting people. Sometimes people you may not know by name. But I hope you stick around for some of the uh, the uh, non-Bendis interviews or the non-Rucka interviews. That might be a hint of things coming in uh, the weeks and months ahead as far as a uh, couple names. So keep that in mind and even more. But uh, thanks a lot. Uh, it's been a cold summer here in the Midwest. But I hope uh, you're at least enjoying it from a listening standpoint of uh, the interviews and information that you get right here at wordballoon.com. Thanks again for listening. Take care. Have uh, have fun if, uh, I, if you don't hear me before the 4th of July weekend. Otherwise, I'll talk again to you next week. Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions. Copyright 2015.